I've called this the Lord's Prayer, Seven Sonnets and Seven Meditations, and at the core of it uh, are seven, seven poems I'm going to share, though I actually also have a couple of extras. So um, we're really actually going to have the little friend nine on the handouts. Um, I said in, a, in the little sort of um, intro to this that uh, one of the problems we can have, if we're not careful, with the Lord's Prayer, as with almost with many, many others, of the sayings and teachings of Jesus. The problem is simply over-familiarity. Just, they just whistle past us. They go racing past us, we scarcely know what we've said. Uh, maybe one phrase or another registers with us as we're going through it. We might stay with that, but even that can be a challenge. Um, the poet uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, when he was looking back at what he and Wordsworth thought they were up to, when they, they changed the course of English poetry forever with their book, The Lyrical Ballads. He looked back and he said, one of the things we were trying to do, Wordsworth and I, he said, was, and I'm quoting Coleridge now, to awaken the mind's attention, to remove the film of familiarity, which our selfishness and solicitude have cast over nature. Nature, a source of inexpressible wonders, but we've filmed it over with our own concerns and things. And it's, you know, um, later on, Gerard Manley Hopkins made the same point. There lives a deep down freshness in all things, but why can't we see all this bleared with trade, seared with trade, and wears man's smudge and feels man's smell, nor can foot feel being shod. This, poets have recognized that about nature, and I think Coleridge's. Coleridge's notion that there is a film or a veil that our familiarity with things is cast over them, and that poetry awakens the mind's attention and removes the film of familiarity. Well, I began to wonder whether if that was a problem with, with nature, in fact, Coleridge in the same passage goes on to say, because of this film of familiarity, he says, that here are these deep, ever-renewing, ever-fresh wonders of nature, and he says in, in his book, a biography, a literary, about, about their He said, therefore we have eyes that see not, ears that hear not, and hearts that neither feel nor understand. Now, obviously, he's alluding to a passage of scripture there. So it occurred to me to wonder whether we didn't also cast the same film of familiarity over the scriptures as much as over nature, and whether we might not need, in some sense, to to peel back that film and just feel the freshness of these things. So thinking about that, I set myself the task um, two or three years ago, um, having written a book called Sounding the Seasons, which traced the kind of whole course of the salvation story through the sacred year from, from Advent you know, into Christmas and Epiphany and then down into the, into the sort of harrowing intensity of Holy Week and the paradoxes of Good Friday and up into the joys of Easter. I'd completed this whole cycle, which is very much about what God in Christ has done for us. But I wondered whether it was time, having done that and celebrated Christ as Saviour, to just also remember him as teacher and to spend some time sitting at his feet. So I decided that for my next sonnet sequence, I would just try and write, and I did, 50 sonnets on the sayings of Jesus. And the poems about the Lord's Prayer I'm going to read to you and share with you today are part of that sequence. 
I wasn't sure, of course, where to start. I spent, you know, a year just, as it were, sitting in the pews and listening to these bits that come at you and you go, really? Did, did he just say that? You know, <laughs> um, I spent a certain amount of time, I suppose I might say, kind of channeling my inner Doubting Thomas. I always felt that uh, I love Doubting Thomas, whose day we celebrated recently, um, because I feel that he sometimes gets the best things out of Jesus by, by questioning, by talking back, by, by pushing against what he's heard and saying, really? So you remember when, when um, Jesus, you know, in the great discourse in, on Monday Thursday, you know, before he dies, says, says to the disciples, I'm going now to prepare a place for you so that where I am you may be. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And you can see all the disciples, you know, stroking their beards and nodding sagely and trying to look wise. And inside thinking, what's happening now? We've only just got here. Is he going somewhere else? I don't know what's going on. You know, but they're just sitting there saying nothing, you know, like students in you know, their class. Except for good old so-called Doubting Thomas. You remember who says, Master, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And that question produces one of the most precious of all the sayings of Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life. We wouldn't have that. So I thought if I'm going to sit at the feet of Jesus like the disciples did and try and listen, then if I've got a question, I'm going to ask it. You know, I, I wrote in, in Sounding the Seasons, I wrote a, a sonnet for Thomas, I don't know, which, um, which uh, called him... Uh, we, we do not know, how can we know the way? Courageous master of the awkward question. <laughs> you had the, the, the courage to say what others would not say and push through their evasion and abstraction, you know, because he loved your awkward counterpoint. The word himself has granted you your wish, you know. So, so, so um, to some degree, I wanted to not just listen, but to question. Um, so I'd sat down and... Um, thought, I'm going to write these poems. And because I was rather haunted by this saying of Coleridge's about the film of familiarity, the very, I decided that the very first saying of Jesus that I would try and um, pay attention to meditatively and poetically, because um, the great thing about poetry is it brings another, it opens another eye for you. It's not that you shouldn't use your analytical reasoning powers and the eye of clear understanding, but you also need the eye of imagination to bring things into a richer and fuller focus, to see them in, in color and to see yourself in them. All that requires something of your poetic capacity. Um, in fact, I wrote these poems. I was on sabbatical, in, and I happened to be of Lent, the study in America of Richard Hayes, because he was on sabbatical, who is one of the greatest New Testament scholars of all time. So um, I was sitting in a room absolutely packed with the latest New Testament commentary. But I said to myself, I'm going to do something different. I'll refer to it occasionally, but I'm going to do something different. So I decided, to, before I wrote anything else, I would write a poem about the saying, he who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Because the fundamental problem in writing anything about this was finally to hear what Jesus actually said and really let it be what it is. And not just some half memory from Sunday school and repetitions at, in school assemblies and something that's been rattling about in the back of our mind for ages, but never really in, encountered or engaged with. So this is the poem that I wrote. And 
you'll see there's a bit of a turn. The poem is, like many sonnets, divided into an eight and a six, an octet and a sestet. And the turn in this poem, I have to say, took me by surprise. But then that's what you need in poetry. If you already know completely before you sit down to write a poem what exactly what it's going to say and mean, you needn't bother. You know, there's no poetry in it. Uh, it's just a transcription of another idea already pre-digested in your mind. It's when the poem pushes back and does something different. You'll see what happens. I'll read you the poem and then we'll see. So here I present the problem. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a preface to everything we say about the Lord's Prayer. How hard to hear the things I think I know. To peel aside the thin, familiar film that wraps and seals your secret just below. An undiscovered good, a hidden realm, a kingdom of reversal where the poor are rich in blessing and the tragic rich still struggle trapped in trappings at the door they never opened. Life just out of reach. Open the door for me. Take me there. Love, take my hand and lead me like the blind. Unbandage me. Unwrap me from my fear. Open my eyes, my heart, my soul, my mind. I struggle with these grave clothes, this dark earth. But you are calling. Lazarus, come forth. So I hope maybe something of the sort of struggle that's in the initial eight lines of that poem will ring bells with you. And uh, you'll also have seen what happened. It's almost embarrassing to me to read this poem because having hit on that idea of the film of familiarity, I mean, it's, oh, it's awful to think, I, loftily, I, <laughs> thought, oh, I'll just do, I'm going to do for the Bible what Coleridge did for nature. <laughs> I don't think so, but... <laughs> You know, you can see, I set myself the task that, you know, it's hard to see this stuff. It's covered with the film of familiarity, so now we're going to unwrap the film. Yeah? And see it in its freshness. What a really ludicrously arrogant and foolish thing for me to have thought I could do. That I would, you know, after centuries, I'm going to just walk down to my little hut with my pen in my hand and peel off the film. And, of course, you see what happens. The poem, and perhaps the Lord himself, pushes back and says, oh, you think something's, um, something's wrapped in a lot of film and not really cutting through, do you? And you have the arrogance to think it's the Bible. Does it not occur to you that it's you <laughs> that's wrapped in all those layers of protection and layers of possession and layers of self-concern and self-awareness? Uh, you thought you were the knife that was going to cut through the wrappings on the Bible. Don't you understand, you fool? The Bible is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of joint and marrow. By all means, expose yourself to the sayings of Jesus. But it's Jesus who's going to unwrap you, not you who's going to unwrap Jesus. And that's what I learned from this poem. It was a useful thing to learn before I sat down and made a fool of myself for another 49 sonnets. <laughs> That was the point. But of course, although it came in way back, the poem came back at me in a kind of rebuke, um, it was also, of course, a great joy and a liberation. Because suddenly, 
I can say to the scripture and to the words and to the sayings of Jesus, let your wisdom come in and pierce me. Let it take me by the hand. Let it lead me. Let me do this. It's the burden off me, didn't it? And that's one of the things that I think inhibits us in our reading, in our praying, in our teaching, is this feeling that somehow we've got to be some kind of an expert before we've even opened the book. Or we've got to be good at prayer before we sit down to meditate. We, we just, you know, because the world is like that, because the world won't let you start anything until you're already qualified to do it, so supposedly. Though in the case of some, some things, like the teacher training I had when I trained to be a teacher, I was probably more qualified before I did that than afterwards, you know. And it sort of ruined most of my best ideas, you know, I had to recover them uh, in the end. You know I did, though. <laughs> I used to teach, we know, he and I used to teach in the same school. But, um, so, so we get this thing about, you know, which, dis, which kind of, inhibits us and disables us. But actually, if we say, no, no, the only qualification I need ever to come to Christ or to open the Bible or to pray is to be a learner. As soon as I think I'm a teacher, I'm already in trouble. Let me sit at this thing and learn. Then it's a whole new way of doing it. Which isn't to say that the problems that I noticed in that first problem of, you know, how do I see this thing which is too familiar aren't, aren't uh, real, but I just have to let the words themselves deal with me. So when I turned in the second part of this song, it said, open the door for me. I'm addressing Christ directly. And take me there. Take me to that hidden realm. Take me through your writings to that kingdom of reversal where the poor are rich in blessing. I can't do this by myself. And then I sort of little doff of my cap uh, to my great master in poetry and in prayer, and that, of course, is George Herbert. So George Herbert's poem, Love, you know, love bade me welcome. It's the same problem that she's doing. Love bade me welcome, but my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. Well, guest, I answered, worthy to be here. You shall be, he says, love. I be unworthy, I be unkind, and it says. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I. So that comes in this poem where I say, open the door for me and take me there. Love, take my hand and lead me like the blind unbandage me, unwrap me from my fear. So I want to just read those lines now, again, before we go into the, the Lord's Prayer itself. Um, and uh, I'm going to read them as a prayer uh, for myself as I speak to you, and uh, perhaps you can hear them uh, yourself as a prayer. In fact, it, it, perhaps you would be willing to, to just read the first four lines aloud with me as a prayer. The first four lines of the second verse. So from open the door to my mind. Perhaps we can just make that a dedicatory prayer for what we'll do for the rest of the day. So let's say that together. Open the door for me and take me there. Love, take my hand and lead me like the blind. Unbandage me, unwrap me from my fear. Open my eyes, my heart, my soul, my mind. Amen. So, 
What I want to do in the, in the time we have um, is uh, think about the, the Lord's Prayer in sort of seven stages or seven parts. Um, and for each of these, I've, I've written uh, a sonnet. I suppose the first thing I want to, question I want to ask before we even you know, begin to read one of these is, what do we mean when we say the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer, that teaching of who it is? For a long time, when I was a little kid and was taught to say this in assembly, and we all said it together, I always used to, it, occasionally I would open my eyes to look around. We were all supposed to have eyes closed, hands together. That's the way we did it. And I remember being really annoyed to see that the headmaster, during the prayer, had his eyes open because he was looking around to tick off anybody that didn't have their eyes <laughs> closed. And I remember thinking, there's a problem with that. But obviously I couldn't complain about it because then I would have shown that I had my eyes open to see that his eyes were open to see whose eyes were closed. But we just learned this thing called the Lord's Prayer and I didn't even think like, what does that mean to call it his prayer? But there's a paradox here. I imagine that, well we can see from the Gospel in fact, we see it in Nathaniel's response, that in differing degrees those first disciples who met Jesus quite quickly, they may not have been able to articulate it or do theology with it, but they quite quickly became aware that this was the most extraordinary person they've ever met. And for some people, like Nathaniel, who one minute is going, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, who's this jerk from Nazareth? Takes one look at Jesus, Jesus looks at him, and he says, you are the Messiah. He just sees immediately who he is. In differing ways, they recognized that they had met somebody who was closer to the heart of God than anybody they'd ever met. Gradually, they became to realize that this was the Messiah, that this, and then, more astonishingly, that this was in some unique way the only begotten Son of God. They had that in different senses. The, there's a moment of revelation of it, obviously, at the baptism of Jesus, when the heavens are opened and the voice says, this is my beloved child in whom I delight. You know, do what he... So you can imagine that they wanted to be near him because he was special. But equally, you can imagine that because he was special, they would assume that the way he does things with God is totally sui generis. That's his thing, right? They're just hoping to get some crumbs from the table or some spillage, but what they want to know is how they, in their ordinary lives, can, can follow him. So I think, in the prelude to the Lord's Prayer, as we have it in Matthew, when the disciples come up and say, Lord, teach us how to pray, I think the natural emphasis would be on the word, us. Lord, teach us how to pray. They've watched Jesus going off a distance apart. We've got records of that, and there he goes aside, and they must have been quite a thing where he went. And they must have, at that point, felt the intense presence of the, of the whole of the divine trinity. God there. Perhaps they saw his lips moving. Perhaps they even heard him say the word Abba, Father, but Abba, that intimate, Abba, Daddy. Yeah? And they must have been in total awe because although in the Old Testament God has come to Yahweh, whose name they couldn't even speak, is sometimes called the father of Israel or even the father of the nations, there's no record anywhere in the Old Testament of any individual human being as a person in their own right presuming to call 
the unnameable name father. It just wouldn't be done. So here they see this person who does that. And they must have thought, wow, I'm going to stay close to him because he's in this unique relationship. But because it's a unique relationship, obviously I can't say that. So I go up to him and I say, well, we, the disciples finally, you know, all wanting to do this and they push Peter forward or whatever, you know. Lord, teach us how to pray. Obviously you say one thing, what should we say? Um, And so when Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, our Father, who art in heaven, they must have been absolutely staggered. He's inviting them into that relationship. And it was obviously so astonishing and so much the core of the, the unexpected good news in Jesus. It's emphasized again, isn't it, at the end of John's Gospel, when he's giving the good news to Mary Magdalene to share with the others, and thus making her an apostle to the apostles. Um, he, he says, tell your brethren that I'm ascending to my father and to your father, you know, to my God and to your God. Look, I've shared this. And John's Gospel is so astonished by this that he, he kind of puts it in bold headlines as the most important thing, right? You know, we, be, he, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Yeah, that's the unique thing. But John's prelude says, to all who believed in him, he gave the power to become the children of God who were born not of the will of the flesh nor of the will of blood nor of man, but of God. Yeah? He gave the power. So, this moment where he takes a prayer which they presume is entirely and uniquely his and says, it belongs to you, must have been astonishing. And they must have felt a tremble every time they took that on their lips because they did it, as it were, by an astonishing act of inclusion and and adoption, which was the very core of the gospel. So Paul, later in Romans, he says, you know, we know that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts and that we've received the pledge of the Spirit, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So that's the first thing I think that we want to say, is this is not the ordinary, dull, bog-standard prayer that we've all been ground down into and made to recite when we were young until we can finally leave it behind and get on to some real cool spirituality stuff. Um, it's actually staggering. And in some Christian traditions, like the Orthodox, you're not allowed to say this prayer that kids can't until you're in full communion. That tradition, that idea that this prayer is unique to Jesus and then astonishingly and graciously we belong to it too, is actually reflected, um, if I can speak for a moment in my role as you know, Anglican um, for, for a minute, church, it's very beautifully reflected in a subtle way in the Book of Common Prayer a subtle way which is unfortunately lost in the later revisions. If you go, I don't know if any of you ever go to sort of the eight o'clock communion, you know, that early morning book of common prayer communion. But if you ever do, and you read the rubric, or, or people do it the way it says in the book, you're sat around, you know, if you're a shy eight o'clocker hiding behind a pillar somewhere in a big drafty church, a few other people dotted around. The priest comes in up at the far end, and according to the rubric, the priest says, the priest, the first thing, the priest doesn't greet anybody. The priest up in the sanctuary comes in and says the Lord's Prayer in a low voice. That's what the rubric says. So you come in, you look up, you see this distant figure in the holy place intimately saying the Lord's Prayer. And you just listen. 
then comes an invitation. Then you say to God, you know, Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts that we may... And then there's a series of coming forward, coming forward, stepping back, until finally you receive your Holy Communion, and everybody is grafted back into the vine. And in that service, what is the first thing that happens immediately after you receive Holy Communion? Everybody says the Lord's Prayer together. You are now all together. The priest at that first moment represents Christ in himself in relation to the Father. But of course, he also represents the priesthood of all believers. And the communion shows that we all belong, and that's what you do. You come up to where he is, and with him you say this prayer. And that's somehow enacted in the very shape of the liturgy. So that was something I wanted to, to think about when I wrote the first poem. And uh, so for the first poem, I voiced it, as it were, for one of those disciples who would have been in the group that asked how to pray. But at the same time, I tried to voice it so that we ourselves could enter again into that sense of privilege. And I wanted to give voice also to um, <clears throat> the common experience. And I think this is an experience of many people who are deep in prayer as well. Of, in spite of everything, suddenly feeling like you're falling away, suddenly feeling like it's distance again, suddenly feeling that darkness and separation and wondering what to do about it. So I, I put that in there too. Our Father. Well, let's just, let me just read Matthew 6, 9 to 13, and then we'll go on to read Our Father. So Matthew 6, 9 to 13. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So our Father, I heard him call you his beloved son and saw his spirit light like a dove. I thought his words must be for you alone, knowing myself unworthy of his love. You pray in close communion with your Father, so close you say the two of you are one. I feel myself to be receding further, fallen away, at outcast and alone. And so I come and ask you, how to pray, seeking a distant supplicant's petition, only to find you give your words away, as though I stood with you in your position, as though your father were my father too, as though I found his welcome home in you. Interestingly, when I wrote that poem, you see there's that little set of as though, as though, as though. I realized that words as though and as if were coming up again and again in my response to Jesus. And I realized that this is because he's appealing to our imagination. He's saying, it may not feel right now that you are where you are, but actually, because you, 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 you are entirely beloved to God, Behave as though you were, as though you knew you were. Behave as though you already had your royal crown. Start acting. All the Beatitudes are telling you to live in the kingdom as the kingdom is now. You know, 
give away as if you had no need to gain, you know, turn the other cheek as if you had... Behave already as the children of heaven. And I, God is already treating you entirely in, in that way. Um, and uh, I imagine somebody going, oh my goodness, it's almost as if I were his child. And of course the thing is, because you are. You really are. Because the world is giving you a completely different message, it almost feels like an act of subversive imagination <laughs> to see yourself and your neighbour in this new light. Though actually, the new light is the real light. It's, it's the actual truth, and that's why, why the imagination is a sort of truth-bearing faculty. And his welcome home, you know, if you, if you are indeed the child of God, even if you're the child in the story uh, of, uh, you know, of the prodigal son, then you are on your way home. And in a sense, your welcome home is already assured, already assured and given in Christ. So one of the things that means for me, for the entire rest of this prayer, however we wrestle with it, however much we may set, is that this prayer from here on in is entirely gift and not task. We can turn it into task, we can turn it into agenda, we can take bits of it and use the, the different lines of it to beat ourselves up with, and that would be wrong. It's entirely gift. Now, having received the gift, we might want to say, how can I receive it more? If the gift of prayer that I've received includes forgive us our trespasses as, as we forgive those who trespass others, I may indeed want to get myself to work a little bit harder on that forgiving. But I can only do that if I know I'm already forgiven. I can only do that in response to the forgiven. I may want to do a bit more on the grounds of sharing daily bread with people. But I can only do that freely and fully if I've already received my daily bread entirely as a generous gift. So, so I think just those first two words, our Father, locate this prayer entirely in the realm of gift and, and, and grace. And everything we want to do flows from that. Um, so I'll just pause there for a minute. We've looked at a couple of poems uh, and about some general principles we're going to go on in a minute um, to look at the word hallowed, which is very important. But can, do you want to come back to me on that? Does any of that begin to make sense? Perhaps you could share with me one or two responses that you've had to the whole question of um, how you first learned this prayer, what you do with it, whether you, you rattle through it or whether you do it slowly. C.S. Lewis, for example, in a one of his letters talking about how not to take the Lord's Prayer for granted. It says he had a habit of festooning the Lord's Prayer. He said, I do the festooning. So he says, you know, when I get to, to, to um, you know, give us this day our daily bread, I'll stop and think about what I've eaten in the last few days or I'll think about the person who prepared the food for me or I'll, you know, I'll stop, I'll sort of pause the prayer and, um, and then festoon that line around with my own little petitions, and then I'll go on to the next one. That's one way of doing it. There are others. So let's just throw it over to you. Any responses on the general question of familiarity or on the specific question of what it means to be allowed to call God Father? This is an Catholic church Yeah. And I find myself slowing it down. Yeah. Find almost because my that's my personal view. I I tend to feel that the congregation almost sort of get pinched when I 
like to put stress on certain words. Yeah. Deliver. Yeah. And, you know, go out and give us to say our daily bread. Yeah. You know, it is so important. Yeah. And they rattle through it, and I'm trying yeah. to slow it down, and I can feel this. Yeah. You know, almost, how dare you? Yeah. Because yeah. it's almost making them feel responsible for their actions. Yeah. And subconsciously, I'm trying to say, not that I'm, I mean, I, is let's stop. Especially in terms of what Pope Francis is trying us to do, is to make us aware of our actions and make us responsible for our actions. Yeah. What's happening out there is really what's happening in ourselves. And we try to divorce ourselves, I think, yeah. from what's happening there. And we, we feel when we do charity, we are doing our bit. But no, it's our duty, our responsibility. Yeah. And that prayer is at the heart of it. That prayer absolutely is. I think the thing about rattling past it, I think there are both there's a, both a bad way and a good way of rattling it along. Obviously, if you just, all you ever did was go through it rapidly with everybody else without thinking, would be I mean, I think it's great that people know the prayer by heart, and they partly know it by heart because they've had it in school assemblies and things. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, and learning by heart involves rattling things off to some degree. And providing they do, providing it's not then never anything more than a baby's rattle, then there's a problem. But what the great advantage of knowing a prayer by heart, as people would know with the Jesus prayer or with, or with, with, with um, the Ave Maria, is, is that you can sometimes go into a prayerful zone where you let it go past you. And as it goes past you, you pay attention to different phrases as they come through. So there is a good side to that. But I agree with you that in public recitation, there should be some variety in how it's done. And there should be an occasion, at least publicly, where people can say that prayer together with a genuine pause between each petition. So, uh, anybody else want to come, come back on that, your own personal experiences with this prayer, either from childhood or church, or from your own personal ways of um, saying I, it? Yeah. I, I always thought that uh, the time the, the, the greeting of our father, I, I always found it, as a child, a bit frightening. Oh, right, that's interesting. Because it was taking me away from the familiar of what our father is, and which was my dad. Yeah. Uh, and as an adult, with a bit more sophisticated thought, I always think of our father when there is a crisis. And when that crisis has you know, sort of positive and negative, mm. I always think, well, how can our father be involved mm -hmm. with the negativity? And so I, I always sort of challenge the, our mm. father, which art in heaven as an adult. Mm. Why, why are you paying attention to yeah. negativity? Yeah, well, funny enough, that tension between the sense of God, you know, the goodness of God in heaven, but the way, is actually embodied in the prayer. I mean, because if it just, if the prayer went, Our Father which art in heaven, gee, it must be great for you up there, uh, fantastic, it's too bad about it. You know, do you know what I mean? If it was nothing about all the good stuff is up there and we'll just, we'll just get our heads down and try and get through this and hope to be lifted out of it eventually, 
it would be a very different prayer, wouldn't it? Because it, you could say it almost as a challenge from the Son, Jesus the Son to the Father on behalf of humanity. Thy kingdom come on earth. You know, what about, what about having a bit of thy will done here? You know, look at this situation right here. Yeah, it, it's actually saying, come on, you know, let's have a bit of this action here. And I mean, of course, Jesus plays that in great confidence because he is himself the answer to that prayer. He is the kingdom come on earth. He is the one place, the one locus in which the will of God is done. And we see what that means radically and challengingly. So I think that question, and that tension is reflected in Luke's narrative as well, isn't it? Where they've got, they're taking him home and his father and mother, you know, he's got, and then they miss him on the road. They're, oh my goodness, we've lost Jesus, you know, and um, have to go back and then where did we last see him? Oh, he's in the temple, you know, and they go back. And Jesus doesn't even see that there's an issue. He goes like, oh, <laughs> no problem. Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? Your father will have a word of you about that. You, know, <laughs> you, you really get that. So I think you should, you should own that. You shouldn't feel uncomfortable about that. Because I, I think that's, that's something that's patterned into the prayer itself, I would say. I heard, I heard a, oh, here, I, I read, I, I studied the sermons of um, John Donne, the poet, and uh, Lance Andrews. And John Donne, the, the 17th century poet, who was also dean of St. Paul, has just a brilliant sermon about that story in Luke, about how they went on, they thought he was in the company, and they traveled three days without leaving, you know, because, oh, they're all walking back from Jerusalem after the pilgrimage, you know, back to Nazareth. He's bound to be with his cousins somewhere. You know the way you do, you know, big family parties. And you can imagine the consternation, you know, we've lost him. And so John Donne is retelling the story, and then he says, so if any of you feel you might have lost Jesus, you might have misplaced him, if you feel like your faith has gone, if you don't worry, you're in good company. Even Mary made that mistake, you know. So why don't you just do what Mary did, you know, just think about when was the last time and place that he was real to you? Why don't you go back there and look for him? You know, why don't you search diligently for him? It's great that you've noticed. And maybe you thought, maybe you've been coming to church for years and you, you just thought he was in the company, he's bound to be around here somewhere. And then you're thinking, no, I've lost my personal contact with him. Come by yourself into, father, into you know, his father's house. It's a, it's a beautiful sermon. Um, anyway, so thank you for that. Okay, well, let's, let's... So I just wanted that our father really to frame the sense that... Um, uh, that this is an astonishing gift to be allowed to call him father and that the whole gospel, in a sense, is wrapped up in it that in the end it's all about the assurance. The very fact that we say our Father is already an assurance that we are his beloved children, that we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, that we have been given the power and received it and taken it on our lips that we might be the children of God. So compared with that, there's really, you know, like any other task you may be assigned today or next week, is trivial in comparison with that gift already. You know, like, you, you go ahead and achieve stuff or don't achieve stuff. But you're never going to have a better or more significant status in the world. And you're never going to hear a more enormous yes to you than the yes to you that God speaks in Christ Jesus, whereby he calls you children and lets you call Jesus brother and him father. 
And that's just already there. So it's just, just kind of helpful to know that the next time somebody's stressing you out and saying you really need to live up to the mark. Because there's no human mark higher than the one you've already been lifted up to in, in Christ. So I wanted to talk about the next phrase, hallowed be thy name. And this is where maybe, you know, a kind of being a poet comes out a little. I'm using, I'm using the, I mean, obviously there's different versions of the Lord's Prayer, and I, I will talk later about the, the, the one bit of different version that I found very helpful was when it said, do not bring us to the time of trial. You know, that was a really interesting question. But generally speaking, as a poetry guy, I, love, I prefer the older language. I like the rhythm of the older language. I particularly love the word hallow. Hallowed. And that's where I start with this poem. Hallowed be thy name. There's something in the sound of the word hallow. A haunting sense of everything we've lost amidst the trite, the trivial, the shallow where nothing lingers, nothing seems to last. But hallowed summons up our fear and wonder and summons us to stand on holy ground, to sense the mystery that stands just under familiar things we'll never understand. Hallowed be thy name, the name unspoken, the name from which all other names arise. The name that heals the sick and binds the broken, whose living glory calls the dead to rise. You make this prayer my rising and my rest, that I might bless the name by which I am blessed. So in that poem, I'm trying as it were, to tease out some of the sort of paradoxes, really, involved in, in, in what it speaks, what it means to say that we hallow, make holy, bless, honour, recognise as the name of God. It's also hello. When you, when you, when you said on the first line, Hello. Yeah. Oh, right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I don't know what the, uh, the origin of the word hello is. I know goodbye is God be with you. Yeah. So whether hello has any, is in any way cognate with hello, that's an interesting question. And, of course, you get that sense of uh, the greeting in, in, in the, uh, the Middle East, whether it's shalom, yeah. the peace, or salam alaikum, you know, salam. It's, both mean the peace of God with you. Yeah. So that, thank you. That's that that that's interesting. So I so in the first part of this poem, I'm I'm doing a little bit of lament, I guess, about the sense of um, we don't use words like hallow in its ancient sense or bless or without, and it's all, you know the sense of the sacred as very much, and in fact, a kind of common response to the latest outrage and awful thing that happens, you know, in the papers, is kind of said to say is nothing sacred. You know, we feel that really strongly. When I was, um, I, after I was ordained in, in 1990, I did my curacy in, in, in Ely. But then I was sent as a, as a 
as a parish priest for my first job as a, you know, as a vicar, um, to the only uh, EPA, as they were called then, the only urban priority area in the Diocese of Ely, which was a, an estate called the Oxmoor Estate in Hunter. And um, uh, I was there, vicar there, and also to, at a mother suburban church. So when I sat down as the new person, you know, talking to, in the interviews to begin with, talking to the church, I said to them, in this tiny, this, only a few people went to this church and all the windows were always being broken and the stuff, you know, old needles discarded around it and everything. And I said, um, it was a church in the, in the Anglo-Catholic tradition. It, it was a modern building, but it was come out of that sort of Anglo-Catholic tradition that used to sort of have priests walking around the East End, you know, in their cassocks, and, and, and uh, used to say, if people have to live in horrible, shoddy hovels, why shouldn't they at least have a beautiful big building to worship in with big stained glass windows and smells and bells and all the best for God? Um, anyway, it was kind of out of that tradition. So they had, they had a sanctuary, they had a, an altar, they had the reserved sacrament, they had a little candle, and, but the church kept on doing some break. So I said to them, out of the whole treasury of the gospel, all the things that the household and the scribe of the kingdom, things old and things new. What do you think it is that Jesus has given you here on this estate to share with your neighbours? What's the bit of the treasure? What's the bit of the hem of Christ's garment, if you like, that we can lay out, that people can find and touch? And I don't think they've been asked that before, but they answered without hesitation. They said, that something is sacred. They said, what people say on this estate when the latest horror has happened is is nothing sacred. And we want to say there's something sacred. And they want us to stop and saying, here is the sacred, beautiful thing the host is. But this is sacred, and because you've received this, you are sacred. Because you're the child of God, because your neighbor is the child of God, your neighbor is sacred. But you've got to start somewhere with the notion that something is sacred. And so that sense of the hallowing, the sacred, so, you know, was sort of watermarked into me by this, this, this congregation who told me that was the thing that was most important for them to share. Um, but there's also a kind of extraordinary paradox, isn't there? When you say, bless the Lord my soul, and bless his holy name, um, you know, or hallowed be thy name, or, you know, that's, if you think about it, very odd. Surely it's the Lord who blesses us. Surely his, it's taking his name that in any sense brings a hallowing to us. And yet he invites us to bless him. And in fact, in the very act of blessing him, his hallowedness, that which is holy about him, comes down and rests on us. And indeed, a sacred space is a space that's been set aside for God and offered to God. But it's God's holiness that then comes and blesses it. So there's this paradox that to bless is to be blessed, in, uh, in, always. Uh, to give thanks for anybody is to bless them. So that's just, uh, it seems to me an amazing thing. that we. I say, hallowed be thy name, but actually the name itself is utterly holy. No amount of my hallowing it can ever make it any more holy than it already is. But my noticing that it is holy, and therefore saying the word hallowed, my offering awe and wonder at the hallowedness, the holy hallow of the name. That makes all the difference in the world to me. 
the name continues holy no matter what. And in that sense, I think the... And then, of course, what does he say? He says, hallowed be thy name. Well, of course, the name has huge resonance for Jesus and for the people that he's speaking to. Because, as you know, the name, the sacred name of God, which was four Hebrew letters, which you didn't pronounce, um, and which was sometimes called by, by scholars and by others the tetragrammaton, which means in Greek four letters. Um, this is the name that was disclosed to Moses at the burning bush. And Moses, even Moses, couldn't, couldn't ask for it straight. You know, when, when Moses comes along and sees the lit bush and the burning bush, you know, Moses, Moses, take off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place where thou art standing is holy, hallowed ground. So he then becomes aware that he's in the presence. And then, I am the God of your ancestors. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I want you to go to Pharaoh to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. So he recognizes that he is in the presence of the holy. But you notice God calls himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now in the ancient world, name and nature are closely linked. And to know a name is to be put into a very particular covenant relationship. And names are withheld, and not some names are secret. And your, to give your name makes you open to and vulnerable to another person's group. So it's a very highly charged and extremely dangerous thing to ask a god their name if they haven't given it already. Um, so Moses does a sort of almost the classic stratagem, you know, like it's not for me, you understand, I'm asking for a friend. Because um, he says, when I go to the ch children of Israel and say the God of your ancestors has told me to get you guys together so we can tell Pharaoh to let people go, if they ask me what is the name of the God who came here, what shall I tell them? <laughs> and that is the point at which this name appears, these four letters in the Old Testament. Tell the children of Israel that I am ascension. I am or I am who I will be. And the, the letters, originally people wanted to, because you know in Hebrew you get the, you don't get it's consonants and breathings, you don't get the, the vowel. So, so some people thought that the missing bit, and they wrote, they wrote the consonants, and then because you'd never said that name, what the scribes would do is write Adonai over that name. Adonai means Lord. And the first translators of the Bible into English foolishly thought that the, the bits of Adonai written above were the missing vowels. So they took the four letters and the bits of Adonai and they came up with the word Jehovah. Yeah? Which was, actually we now know, you know, because we've got better scholarship than we had then, that those four letters, were, if they were ever pronounced, were pronounced Yahweh. But they mean, I am that I am, or I am that I will be. Yeah? Now, this is hugely important, as you know, for John's gospel, because we have these I am sayings, which I came down and did a session on here. Ego, Amy, I am. You know, the Greek for I am could just be ego, but when you put ego, Amy, it's like in capital letters. And, um, you know, when, when Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. 
He's saying Yahweh. And that's where they pick up stones to throw at him. He is identifying himself with the holy name. And indeed, now the holy name has come to you to be a human being. So there's a huge amount going on in hallowed be thy name. But it is the name, in fact, that does all the hallowing. And that's something I try to put in the second part of this sonnet. sonnet. Hallowed summons up our fear and wonder and summons us to stand on holy ground, to sense the mystery that stands just under familiar things we'll never understand. So I believe that when Jesus asks us to say to God, hallowed be thy name, he is asking us to stand on the same ground that Moses stood, with our shoes taken from off our feet. And in fact, the revelation to Moses of Yahweh was, in an extraordinary powerful way, a promise of the coming of Christ. Because if you remember, he says, I have heard the sufferings of my people and I have seen their affliction and I will come down. I will come down and rescue them. But he doesn't come down in that story. He sends Moses. But he's, there's this promise, as it were, still lingering above the bush, I will come down. And when Christian, the early Christians, the great early Christian fathers and mothers, thinking about this, began to reflect on this, they suddenly saw that this miracle and mystery of the lit bush, this thing which was on fire and yet not consumed, still that rooted green bush that ever it was, and yet kindled and alive and transfigured with the holy flame. And this, what, this, 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 this rooted bush that nevertheless spoke the I am and spoke directly in the name of God, rightly, I believe, Christian commentators saw this as a type or shadow, a foreshadowing, as we get so many, of the coming of Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, the full nature of God is present. He is fully God, and yet he is fully human. His full godness does not in any way burn away, consume, shrivel up or dismiss his blood, sweat, bones, guts, passions, feelings as a full human being. And yet every aspect, just like the bush, is not consumed. But every aspect of his full human being is utterly full of and radiant with God. That's what we speak of the two natures and the one person. And theologians have seen in that moment of Moses standing there in this transfigured bush. And that is why, of course, when we get the New Testament moment, again on a mountain, again with sudden shining light, revealing the fullness of God, meeting the nature of this world and neither being overcome by the other, on the Mount of Transfiguration, guess who's there? Moses and Elijah. You have to understand that it's the same mountain. It's not like Moses has been zapped in from somewhere, you know, just like all the different paths on a mountain go up and meet in the same place. There's a sense in which we now in the New Testament are seeing more fully what Moses saw because that bush was the sign of Jesus Christ and the lamb that was slain from before the foundation of all the world, before Abraham was, I am. Does that make sense? You see, so he is. So when he then says to you, through this gospel and through the disciples, say, hallowed be thy name, he's saying, come up with me and see me now. I am the name. It's not just Moses and Elijah and Peter, James and John gathered now. 
with their shoes from off their feet on that holy mountain. It's anybody who says this prayer. That's where this prayer takes you. Now, it's not going to leave you there. Remember, they went up the holy mountain and they had the vision of transfiguration because the next thing that was going to happen was they were going to go down into Jerusalem deal with all the stuff that life throws at you and, you know, act, enact the kingdom. And that's where the rest of the prayer is going to take you to. Yeah? But if you want to take the rest of the prayer into the world, just be, be in the hallowed place. Be astonished. As, you know, Moses didn't have to work or do anything to get that vision. In fact, you know, he was, he, he, it was not like a task for him. It was, ooh, I think I'll take a break from work for a minute and just turn aside from, you know. Because do you remember what, what Moses was doing when he saw the bush burning on Mount Horeb? He was tending his father-in-law's sheep. Do you remember? Jethro, I mean, his life at that point was a complete... He just made a pig's ear of it. You know, if you can say that, it's probably not the thing to say about a you know, great Jewish warfare. But he had. He, you know, do you remember? He'd gone off. He'd sort of become aware of the oppression. He'd, he'd sort of tried to start a one-man rebellion without proper planning and killed an Egyptian. And then immediately got told on, you know, divided the people. Just completely screwed up, like end of first career. Has to leave the country. And then finally, after a certain amount of unemployment, finally has to accept the most humiliating of all solutions to this problem, which is you end up working for your in-laws, you know. And it's kind of, so he's, he's working for his father-in-law. And that, going and finding, you know, tending his, not even his own sheep, right? Tending his father alone sheep on this scrubby bit of land. He doesn't know it's a holy mountain. That's sort of the equivalent of the daily commute, you know, into this nowhere job that he's doing because he had one shot at life and he screwed it up. That's where Moses is. And he's just like anything for distraction. I just so don't want to go to work today. Oh, look, there's something shiny. I think we'll just, I'll just go over there. <laughs> you know, that's where he's at. He's not kind of done some huge preparation course to become the, the epoch-changing leader of the children of Israel. He's just Joe Schmo trying to kind of, you know, be amused on the way to work. And that's where take off your shoes. You're here. You're on holy ground. You've met God. And I, I, that's kind of God's signature. It's sort of how he does things. He often just like picks people around. You know, like, and uh, anyway, so that's what he is. So I think Jesus is saying, okay, you are standing there with, with Moses. And that name is the name from which all other things Arise, hallowed be thy name, the name unspoken, the name from which all other names arise, the name that heals the sick and binds the broken. Now I'm looking forward to all the things we do in the name of, of Jesus, whose living glory calls the dead to rise. Um, you make this prayer my rising and my rest, and then that paradox that I might bless the name by which I'm blessed. Um, I wrote, uh, just before the beginning of the whole sequence of Parable and Paradox, I included a poem on the naming of Jesus. You know, we have that feast sort of eight days after Christmas um, where Jesus receives his name. So Luke 2, 21. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child. And he was called Jesus the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And of course, Jesus contains the word Yahweh. 
Yeshua. Yeshua. Yeah, you don't say the whole of Yahweh, but yeah, it's the Yahweh bit. Shua is saved. Yahweh saves. It means God as Savior. So I wrote this poem. I haven't given it to you. This is about being allowed to hallow the name, being allowed to speak it, being allowed to take this name on our lips, and knowing, in fact, it has now become not the unpronounceable four letters of Yahweh, but the name above all names, which includes and directs Yahweh to us, the name of Jesus. I name you now from whom all names derive, who uttered forth the name of everything, and in that naming made the world alive, sprung from the breath and essence of your being, the very word that gave us words to speak, you drank in language with your mother's milk and learned through touch before you learned to talk. You wove our weekday world and still one week within that world you took your saving name, a given name, the gift of that good angel whose gospel breathes in good news for us all. We call your name that we might hear a call that carries from your cradle to our grave. Yeshua, living Jesus, Yahweh saves. Okay, uh, let's just gather. So I wanted to, to spend a little bit of time on this, those two opening petitions, or you might simply think of them as a single opening petition in two parts. Um, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I wanted very much to have that sense of the what's already achieved and given and the beauty and being on the holy mountain. Because I think it's that experience of holiness of God sheerly given to you, your shoes taken off your feet, the moment of blessing, you're already there. Because I think all the other stuff in the poem, in the prayer, springs from this. And it goes really back to the, the thing that you were saying about, you know, our Father in heaven, but what about what's going on earth and I see these disasters or I see things and I... I, I can see, you know, the positive, but I can see the negative, and I can feel the gap, okay? Now, I think, I'm, uh, particularly to you as a group, I've spoken to different groups about this, but those of you who, obviously, you're part of the meditatio, the Christian meditation movement, I think some of you, you will have practiced some meditative and contemplative prayer, so you will know this. When you have those moments that come in prayer, those gifts of sudden and utter awareness of the, of the closeness of God and the overflowing grace and the beauty of it all. They're, on the one hand, just wonderful blessings and they're part of what you live for. And you go, as Eliot does in the four Cortes, you go, quick, now, here, now, always. A condition of complete simplicity costing, you, you do that, don't you? But do you remember what Eliot also says? He says, quick, now, here, now, always. And then he says, Ridiculous, the waste, sad time, stretching before and after. It's quite hard. The very closeness and quickness and beauty of that, when you come away from it, because you can't stay on the heights, makes you even more aware of the gap between that and a lot of what is going on around you and even in your own life. Yeah. Now, there are two ways of dealing with that gap. One is to look 
back at the rest of the world and say, ooh, I don't want that. I think I'll just come back into my meditative place again. And that would have the danger of turning your meditation into a kind of self-indulgence and a kind of flattering self-therapy or a little sort of escapist niche. And there is, that is a real spiritual danger, is it not? But there is another way in which you say, the God with whom I have to do, the one whom I met in this mountaintop experience, the one who blessed me in the midst of repeating his name again and again in my prayer, is a God whose whole purpose and being was to bridge that gap. He is the God who came down from heaven to earth. And I really need the hallowed and the Father in heaven. I really need that. I need to know, as Paul says later to the church, I think in the Colossians where he says, but you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I really need to know that my name has been put into the heart of his name and he has taken me up there already, right? Like on the Day of Atonement when the great high priest once and once only each of the year would sew all the names of the children of the tribes of Israel in his jacket and his coat and go through the curtain in the veil and make intercession on the Day of Atonement so that your name was taken into the presence where the ark was. But then, of course, it all had to be done and done again next year. So the writer to the Hebrews says, but we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, and he takes not our name but our whole nature there. So I need to know that I'm safe with him there, but I also need to know that I'm in his body and part of his body, and his body still has work to do on earth. And I belong to that body, the church. And I love that, that petition in him that goes, says, that we with our hearts in heaven, here on earth might fruitful be. Yeah? Unlike what C.S. Lewis said about somebody, he, said, he says, I think, uh, in a letter where he says, there are some people who are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly use. <laughs> <laughs> and, but actually, you know, Thomas Merton, contemplation in a world of action. We know this stuff. But all I want to say is, so we have to recognize that ridiculous the way sad time. And far from making it ridiculous, we have to come in, we who have been hallowed by hallowing the name, to come and start doing a bit more hallowing. Yeah? Across the gap. Does that make sense? So I actually think that is the pattern of this prayer. That as soon as it's it, both, it starts up in heaven, and then it gets down to business, is the way I would see it. So the next petition, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not on earth in opposition to heaven, not on earth, oh golly, I had my heavenly moment, now I'm so disappointed that I'm back on the earthly round. Don't be disappointed, that's where God put you here. But don't forget the vision of the heights. Did you see? Thy king. You can't pray for the kingdom to come on earth and the will to be done on earth unless you've got some idea of what the kingdom and the will are. And you've seen them in the clarity of heaven, in the clarity of Jesus' teachings. Does that make, make sense? And yet, it's still a staggering thing. And this is where I want to get to, uh, uh, to say, these, how can we possibly say these next things? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Really? Most of the time, to be honest, we're saying, my will be done, and your will can be done if I can squeeze it in. <laughs> on the margins. You know, it's like C.S. Lewis tells a great story where he says, um, 
He was, it's, it's, in a, it's called, a, he tells it, it told it in a sermon called A Slip of the Tongue. But he was rattling through, rattling through, rattling through the collect one day, you know, praying them in his head, because like, like all good Anglicans, he'd learnt the collect. And you know, there's a collect uh, in the book on prayer that, that's a prayer to God that we may so pass through things temporal that we finally lose not the things eternal. Beautiful prayer. Help me to deal with the day-to-day that I never forget that eternal vision. But Lewis said, he actually found himself saying out loud in the chapel of Morden College, he said, oh Lord, may I so pass through things eternal that I finally lose not the things temporal. (laughs) (laughs) And then he sort of stopped and thought, oh, whoops, got that wrong way around. And then he stopped again and said, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) I've always been praying that, haven't I? That's what I've always said to God, look, I'll give you an hour of my time and my comparatively undivided attention but don't change anything (laughs) like don't mess with me don't make me after my hours prayer go out and do something really foolish like giving my money away or anything like that (laughs) may I say pass through things eternal that I finally lose all the things temporal so we're not going to do we're going to try and have the things eternal and then turn to the things temporal but can we really pray these prayers so let me go back to it being the Lord's prayer in one way, it's the Lord's prayer, and yet he gives it to us, okay? And that's joyful, that we can call God Father. However, and this is also good news, in another way, even though he's given it to us, it's still the Lord's prayer, and he is still praying. And we, how do we pray it? We pray it through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray it in him and with him. And ultimately, there are things in this prayer that only he can say. Now, Jesus can absolutely and unequivocally say, without any ambiguity or shadow of doubt, to his Father in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think that refers to both the kingdom and the will. Both of those things should be done on earth as they are in heaven, right? Jesus can say that because he is, in fact, the kingdom of God, come. Jesus is the one place in locus where the kingdom, that is to say the divine rule, the true perfect will of God, is absolutely happening on earth. It's not shadowed, it's not, it's not compromised, it's not driven off course by stuff happening. Um, it has no ambivalence, he just is the beautiful will of God. That's what he is. He is the kingdom. What he does on earth is the will of God. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he says, you can say that. And I say, I don't think so. <laughs> because I have reservations about how far the writ of God should actually run. Especially when I see that the writ of God is that, you know, is that he has exalted the humble and meek. But, you know, and he's uh, filled the hungry with, but put down the mighty from their seats, but exalted the humble and meek. He had filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he had sent empty away. Well, you know, uh, I'm, you know, comparatively speaking, in the position of the rich there. So when I say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, I'm actually saying, take some of this stuff off me, Lord. But I'm also saying, yeah, but, like, maybe you could leave it till I have to downsize anyway, you know, when I retire. <laughs> and, you know, I will eventually enter the forest-dwelling stage, but I'm still at the beer-swilling stage now. So, you know... <laughs> 
I, there's a kind of compromise. It's like St. Augustine famously saying, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. You know? so, so do you see that I'm, I want to be fully and holy in him, I really do, but at the same time, I am not entirely delivered from a false identification with my own ego and the bundle. There's a bundle of appetites in me which, ha which usurps the word I and says, I want a digestive biscuit. I mean, it's not me in the deepest and most resonant depths of my soul that wants a digestive biscuit. But there's still quite a bit of me invested in the bit that does want the digestive biscuit. Do you see what I mean? I, so I, when I start saying, thy will be done, I can't do it with the complete and utter kenosis, the self-emptying, the giving in of all things into God, to receive them back in a new and beautiful way that Jesus does. So why does he let me do this? Why does he let me, why does he not only let me, but positively teach me and encourage me to take upon my lips a prayer which I know and he knows, and he knows that I know, and I know that he knows that I know. I can't actually deliver. Like, is he trying to make a hypocrite out of me or what? So, so, how do I answer that question? Well, I think the answer to that question is something that he assures the disciples of later in John, which is, is that I will send the Holy Spirit to you, will become, and I, my Father and I will come and make our home in you, and I will be in you, and you will be in me, just as I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. He offers us, and that is what is the case. So when I pray, I never pray alone. I'm adding my voice to the voice of Jesus. I'm saying with Jesus, thy kingdom come. And he is making the fullness of the prayer in me, which I can only make partially. But every time I pray this with Jesus, my brother, and you know, to my father, I'm learning how to do it. I'm saying a little bit more of it. A little bit more of his will is in my will. As I align my will to his and say those words, Thy will be done. Do you see that? In that sense, I'm like a child learning to speak. I learn, I lisp with my mother or my father or my older brother. I, or I'm like a child who's being taught how to write when, when you know, somebody holds my hand and moves the pen for me. And eventually I learn to form the letters. And of course, my letters are wibbly wobbly and all over the place at first. But I've been given a pattern. And it's not simply that I have to achieve it. It's like Jesus is, this is exactly, if you think about the litany, we, we say, by thy fasting and temptation, by thy something I pray, good Lord, deliver us, right? If I look at the three temptations of Jesus that he overcomes, you know, um, if that's just an example to me, and no more than that, an example of godly living, then I'm just going to feel like a failure every time I come up to this. But if it is not only an example, but also a gift and an achievement, if he says, I have done this for you, if in the end on the cross he has fully given humanity over to the Father and asked me to be part of that, he's doing in me and for me what I cannot do myself. But even as I cooperate with him in that, I become more able to do it. Does that make sense? So I think I ought to experience, sometimes at least, when I saw when I say the Lord's Prayer, rather than just rattling off my tongue, I ought to be going, oh my goodness, did I just say that? Like, really? And that's where that is. So let's just go into the poem now and see how far that sort of picks this up. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. Can we imagine what we're asking for? When all we know 
And all we think we're worth as vanity might vanish, disappear, fading before the splendors you reveal, the beggars crowned with glory, all the meek exalted, even as the mighty fall, and everywhere the triumph of the weak. And we, who have been first, will be the last, and queue for mercy like the refugees whom only moments earlier we passed by on the other side. For now the seas that separated are no more. The sun is risen like justice, and his will is done. His will. If you think of all the poor of all the world, if you think of actual prayers right now of the really devout poor, who at one way or another are at the losing end, of the economic system that sustains us. They've got to be praying, how long, O oh Lord? When is this going to come to an end? Where are you going to, when are you going to get these oppressors off our backs? We have to reckon with the fact that, that God hears the prayers of the poor. Um, and there are various things we can do about that. But we, you know, So when we say, think what they're thinking, when they say, thy kingdom come on earth, as they make that petition to God. We have to find ourselves thinking something like that, I think, when we make that petition. Um, which isn't to say that we can't say the prayer. On the contrary, it makes it even more necessary for us to say the prayer. And you know, maybe part of the prayer is saying to God, I don't know how this is going to work out for me, but I know I'm in your hands. And I know you love me. I know I'm already on that mountaintop with you. So if, in fact, part of the experience of my passing through things eternal with you in this prayer is that I have to ha submit to your will and a serious reordering of things temporal, not just personally I've lost what I give away, but I mean a massive re economic reorganization of the entire global system in which there is a much fairer distribution of wealth is going to mean that we don't, you know, have as much stuff because we, you know, we, we're sharing it with other people. Um, it's not the only thing. I mean, there's lots of other things that are to do with the will of God, you know, that we've got. I mean, I mean there's, there's glory and beauty and joy. It's obviously the will of God that he should be known and loved and praised and that the earth should be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And frankly, we experience, I mean, people may experience material oppression in some countries, but they are in, sometimes in cultures where they can radically and gloriously and beautifully praise the Lord and share their faith. We experience major spiritual oppression in the West. You know, the fact that we have to gather up here, we do this little meditation, you know, you know it all. People think you're weird because you pray. You know, every day you pick up a newspaper, which is quite reasonable about political issues, and then just has article after article sneering at your faith and calling it fairy tale and jibing and scoffing, yeah? That's not God's will either. So, you know, we can, you know, God, you know there's, there's, there's joy and liberation for us as well in praying, thy kingdom come on earth, thy will be done. But there's also a challenge. And we just have to go like, actually, you know, it's both. Now, I really like the fact, I think this is an incredibly compassionate prayer and has its own kind of inner logic. So it starts in the heavenly place, then it says, let's make this connection. And of course, he knows, Jesus knows, that as soon as we talk about making this connection, 
The very two things I've just talked about are going to come up. One of them is, what about food and distribution of wealth and bread and stuff like that? And the other is, oh dear, I think I may be on the wrong side, of, if not on the wrong side of history, I think I'm on the wrong side of salvation history here. Do you know what I mean? I think I'm actually, might turn out to be um, one of the people, you know, who, 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 who are like the green bay tree that flourishes, but, you know, it's soon going to disappear. Yeah? So what does Jesus do? Just at that point where we're having that realisation, he says, let's talk about that stuff. Of course you need your daily bread, but whose hand does it come from? And let's talk about the other thing you're worried about, which is that you've screwed up. Let's talk about forgiveness. We can cope with both of these things. But we need to know what this situation is. We can't stop. We need to know what kind of thing we're asking to be forgiven. And we need to relocate the source of all our resources. Because part of the problem of our resistance to redistributing resources materially is the mistaken assumption that they're ours in the first place. It's just a kind of error of accounting, really, that we, we simply put them in the wrong column. And naturally, if we think they're ours, we resent anybody nicking them off us. But if we don't think they're ours in the first place, then we, it's a different issue. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, you know. Um, so let's, let's just finish this morning session with the daily bread poem. But I don't want us to forget when we pick things up in the afternoon that the daily bread is also then linked to the forgiveness. So, so um, it's a remarkable thing uh, when we say, give us this. It's very, going back to how you heard this poem as a child, you know, our father, wait a minute, my father's in heaven. I think we ought to think about this poem both literally and, if you like, in a more sort of sophisticated spiritual way. So if we say, give us this day our daily bread, if I said that to, you know, as a small boy to my dad or to my mum, I would be holding up a plate, wouldn't I? And going, right, can I have some more? And they would kindly and duly put something in and they'd say, oh, I don't like the vegetable bits. You know, <laughs> can I, I want more of the fried chicken, please. You know, whatever it is. Um, and the poem, in a way, you know, Jesus says you must become like a child, asks us to see ourselves doing that with our Heavenly Father. Just says, go ahead and ask. Not give it to me because I mowed the lawn for you yesterday, you know, or I did the dishes last night, but just give it, you know. So let's, anyway, I'll, I'll, this is how it came out in the sonnet. Give us this day our daily bread, we pray, as though it came straight from the hand of God, as though we held an empty plate each day and found it filled by miracle with food. Although we know the ones who plough and sow, who pick and plant and package while we sleep with slow back-breaking labour, row by row, and send away to others all they reap, we know that these unseen who meet our needs are all themselves the fingers of your hand, as are the grain, the rain, the air, the land, and slighting these, we slight the hand that feeds. What if we glimpsed you daily in their toil and found and thanked and served you through them all? So that's just trying to get us to imagine what is the hand of God that puts into this plate 
the daily bread. And I wanted to think both about the people involved in the production, but also about the environment, since the air, you know, the air, the, the, air, the grain, that somehow, somehow this thing. When um, I was um, a sort of, if you show up in any church and you're under 40, it's assumed that you will run the youth group. <laughs> so uh, when I was doing that, I, um, I, I, we wanted to do a sort of harvest Thanksgiving thing. And I found this really lovely book um, intended for very young children. It's intended for five It was called Thank You for My Loaf of Bread. And you opened it up and like it's a little boy um, uh, saying to his mum, thank you for my loaf of bread. And the mum says, no, let's go down to the shop and thank the man who, you know, turn the page and there's the man in the shop, you know, thank you for my loaf of bread. And he says, oh, don't thank me, thank the delivery man. And you turn the page and then, they, you know, actually, it was sort of, uh, mum seemed to have gone home at this point, you know, probably would, couldn't publish the boy going off by his own, you know, so, oh, hello, Mr. Delivery. Anyway, thank you, the delivery man says, oh, don't thank me, you need, you know, you need to thank the baker, or where's the baker, or oh, I'm just going back there now. So the boy has a series of adventures. Anyway, I got this, I got the, this youth group to turn this into a play where, you know, they were all pretending to be the delivery man and, you know, five of them were being the van and we, we, we did this. And it goes back from the delivery man to the baker and from the baker to the miller and from the miller uh, to the farmer. And then the farmer says, oh, don't thank me, you need to thank the seeds. You know, and they had little people being the seeds and they say, oh, don't thank us, you need to thank the sun and the wind and the rain. And then eventually all of them together say, thank God, you know, through all of us. So it was a lovely, simple little book, but it was quite effective, I think, in just, not only in you know, me doing something with the youth group, but actually reminding me of this extraordinary um, chain or sequence or, or community of people who collaborate in order that any of the things that we take for granted should actually happen. And of course, it works the other way around. You know, you and I, in our working lives, have been involved in being a chain of service and supply meeting the needs of others. And some of the people whose needs we've met don't know who we are. I mean, even in, you know, so, so sort of marginal a thing in our society is writing poetry. I always like to meet people who, who've read my poems to talk to them, because then I can see who it was. But I suppose most of the people who read my poetry I've never met, and they'll never meet me. But I've met a need of theirs in some way, I hope, with a poem. And they eventually, by buying the book, have met a need of mine, you know, and enabled me to put, you know, bread on the table and, um, you know, um, clothe my children. So, you know, uh, it, it all kind of works out. And it's actually, it's not meant to be a guilt trip when we say, look at this chain of things. That's, it's actually a kind of revelation of how, you know, we think we're isolated, but we're actually very mutually enfolded. But we, we live in a world that's so fastened on the individual atomized person and that so much values the notion of independence that we create this fiction that we're somehow self-sustaining. Actually, we're completely mutually dependent and mutually enfolded. And it seems to me that when we ask for bread from God, he in turn then is asking us to acknowledge that, that God chooses to give it to us through a series of other gifts, the gifts of the planet, the gifts of the world, the gifts of other people. And that does raise issues about how, how we distribute it. Um, so 
I suppose that one of the things, you know, poems, you don't quite know where you're going until you, you write it. Um, and it's interesting, obviously, I was a little bit of a sort of allusion to changing the phrase of biting the hand that feeds us to slighting. It's slighting these, we slight the hand that feeds. But I think this is actually no slight point. I, I, I want to think that one of the really fundamental um, evils in our society, or, or cor corruptions or corrosions, is the dehumanizing of the people who serve us. You know, we look back at the 19th century, particularly the middle classes and upper classes in the 19th century, and we think it's dreadful that they had servants at all, you know. And we think, oh, isn't it awful that they had upstairs and downstairs in the servants' quarters? But at least they met their servants face to face. And in some households, at least, the mistress of the household might sit down with the cook who was having an emotional problem with the butler, and, you know, at least talk to them as human beings and help sort something out. It's not that we don't have servants. It's just that we've outsourced them to vast, you know, factories elsewhere or, you know, to plantations, you know, boiling in the heat somewhere. We don't even know who they are. And the people that fasten the backs on our mobile phones and put all the things down and, you know, they're all out there. And we can congratulate ourselves on not being snooty like our Victorian forebears, but actually we are being served by people whom we have completely anonymized and then we're making political and economic decisions which make their lives even worse. Unless we go, no, wait a minute, I want to do fair trade. Wait a minute, I do want to, you know, I don't want to buy this from a sweatshop. I do, you know, so that, that, that consumer rebellion, which I entirely, you know, and absolutely like uh, and I'm glad to see happening, is actually about courtesy in the end. It's about courtesy to the people and acknowledging the people who, who serve us. So that's why I chose this word slight. You know, we're just actually, oh, those are only, you know, those people who work in the Amazon warehouses, you know, they're not people like us. They don't have the same expectations. It's okay for them to work in this insecure. You were kind of implying that in some way. And so I think once we start saying, you know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, you know, blessed are all these overlooked people, then we have to say, how am I in a position to bless them? There might be different ways of doing that. But how am I in a position to bless them? How am I in a position not to slight them? And that seems to me all kind of folded into this bit of the Lord's Prayer. Um, well, we are now going to indeed bless and be blessed. I'm going to, perhaps I shall say a grace before we do our little bit of lunch, and we'll just make that a prayer. So thank you for this time together. Thank you for the food we're going to enjoy and those who've prepared it. You know them all. You love them all. You died and rose for them all. Help us in some way, far from slighting, instead to bless those who bless us with these things. Amen. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, found some lunch and found some way of um, giving back uh, thanks, uh, honouring rather than slighting the hand that feeds. So give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those 
who trespass against us. Um, it's a very nice thing that in English, at least, that the word give is contained in the word forgive. Give us, forgive us. We feel that, don't we? We feel that link. And again, this relates back to the whole way in which this prayer, which includes a request for gifts, is itself a gift, and the question of giving. And, but here first, I think we must, we must um, name a difficulty. We must uh, uh, seize a particular bull by the horns. Um, in English, the phrasing forgive, are we okay? Yeah. Uh, in English, um, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive that those, those who trespass against us, as we've been taught to say it, as we're used to saying it, is a kind of ambiguous bit of phrasing. Quite what is going on in the word, the little word, as. Forgive us our trespasses as we. It could be as, it could unfortunately be read, and I think often has been read, with the sense of the word as meaning since. As I did this for you, you jolly well ought to do this for me. Yeah? Rather than as, and the other sense of the word as, as in like manner. Yeah? I wish I was as generous as you are. Yeah? Now, if we read it, uh, it sounds like a bit of plea bargaining with God, doesn't it? If we read it with as in the sense of since, well, forgive us our trespasses as we've forgiven those that just, you know, it's like, I've done this, you do that. No, that doesn't seem. But it could also, apart from being read as a bit of wheedling and plea bargaining with God, which wouldn't be becoming of this prayer at all, especially not as it's Jesus' prayers, you know, and it's Jesus' prayer that he, he, you know, he is the great forgiver. But um, it could, if we take, took this prayer in isolation, and if we took that as in that particular way, because, since, because, we could get ourselves locked into, or rather locked out of, something by an awful kind of legalism. If we were supposing ourselves to say that I will only ever receive the forgiveness of my trespasses as a reward for my having already, by a superhuman effort, forgiven the almost unforgivable things that other people have done to us. We would be putting a massive barrier right in the middle of a prayer, just at the point where we most need a way to be made open for us, right? Now, let's just consider that. Maybe this is that a possibility? Well, Jesus obviously does, in various places in his teaching, make a link between forgiveness, as it were, horizontally, amongst ourselves, and vertically, right? But let's try and make, let's try and, there's a general principle in literary criticism, and I'm a literary critic, but it also is a principle in biblical criticism, that if you have, if you're following a, a teacher or interested in a writer or you're trying to elucidate your meaning in a book, and it's an obscure or ambiguous bit, try and find a much clearer bit in the same book, a much clearer piece of teaching by the same person that touches on the same matter, and the bit you've understood 
should provide you the key to understanding that you haven't understood yet. So our problem is, how does this work? Are we being forgiven in the like manner that other people are forgiven, just as, like? Or are we only being forgiven because we've done some forgiving? Does our forgiving have to happen first to earn our forgiveness? That's the question we're asking. So we need to go straight to the most clear and unambiguous teaching of Jesus on this matter. And that, without question, is the parable of the debtors. Particularly since we know from in that parable, forgive us our debts, as we give those of you, that the word trespasses, which, the word which is translated trespasses, and then now sometimes replaced since, is actually about debts or obligations. Now, you remember Jesus tells the parable of the two debtors that um, there is a man who owes, and he thinks he calls it something like 10,000 denarii, some huge, great, big, almost unpayable that thing that he owes to his Lord. And he says, Forgive me, Lord, I cannot pay. Yeah? And the Lord forgives him completely, unequivocally, absolutely, and without can you just stay what you're forgiven. Yeah? Now, subsequently, this person who has received this extraordinary bounty, and is therefore, it has to be said, quids in, because even if he hadn't been able to pay back the whole debt, you can bet he's accumulated various bits of money to pay off his overdraft. And now suddenly the bank manager has kindly said, you haven't got an overdraft. So he's got, not only not got an overdraft, he's got a kind of bonus, hasn't he? That's the one servant. Then he's one of the servants of the master. Then he goes to his fellow servant. His fellow servant owes him a tiny amount in comparison with his debt and says, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And instead of passing the forgiveness on, he goes, oh, you wicked person, you know, you, you, you've got to owe me and I'm going to have you thrown in prison and all this. And then the fellow servants see this, go back to the master and say, look, that bloke you forgave the massive great debt hasn't even let off this tiny debt, even though he's quids it. At that point, but only at that point, does the master come back in the teaching of Jesus and say, you wicked servant, I forgave you one thing, couldn't you forgive, you know? And it's one of those wonderful parables about the generosity of God. It's like the people complaining who worked from the first hour about the people who are let in at the 11th hour. And, he's, and joy, God, the, the vineyard master says, because I'm generous, must you be jealous? I've given even unto these last as I gave unto the first. So both of those parables are entirely posited on the full first prior generosity of God. Then there's a question of how we respond. So return to our question, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us, or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass to us. I would say that parable makes it clear, it discusses both sides of the equation. It makes it clear, first of all, that we don't have to do anything in order to be forgiven. That our forgiveness is given. Yes? However, it does then say, that parable, that the givenness of our forgiveness, the fact that it's sheer, gracious, abundant, unlooked for, unexpected and undeserved, all of those things, sheer, gracious, abundant, unlooked for, show us what forgiveness is and not only motivate us but enable us to pass that kind of forgiveness on. And passing that kind of forgiveness on to others, forgiving others, is precisely the sign that we've received that forgiveness. You know, it's the thing that, in so you haven't, if you're finding, if you find yourself unforgiving over smaller matters, I'm not talking about a really major trauma, you know, if a child has been killed, you're in a slightly different category. 
what you're able to do and what you're asked. The normal, that person has really annoyed me and keeps on really annoying me, you know, that kind of thing. If it's really hard to let that go and you find yourself minute and exacting with that person, then it's reasonable to ask yourself, do I understand how completely forgiven I have been? Have I really reckoned up how astonishingly gentle and tolerant and uh, forgiving God has been? How completely he has hated the sin of the sinner in me? Because if I really accepted how completely forgiven I am, it might be easier to pass it along. But it's definitely that way around, I think. Now, there is an obligation. Now, the other side of that story is, you know, the person who doesn't do the forgiving, having been forgiven, does get called back to account. So there is a question that I need to ask. In my attitude of unforgiveness to somebody else, am I flinging God's forgiveness back in his face? Yeah? That's a reasonable question to ask. But it shouldn't be a question that makes me anxious about whether I deserve forgiveness. The issue is not that. I never deserved forgiveness in the first place. I've just been forgiven. The real question is, how am I able to become the channel whereby that happens? If God's will being done on earth is his will that where there should be forgiveness of sins, then I have to be part of that act of forgiving. I have to be the sacrament of forgiveness to others. Do you see that? Now, I don't think that means that I have to sit light to the awfulness of what was done, in the sense, I think the English phrase, which is not biblical, and is actually very unhelpful, forgive and forget, is not helpful because it suggests that it's way of saying, and we tend to do this when somebody's really annoyed us and we want to, to, to forgive them. Instead of saying, well, that was crap, but never mind. You know, we love each other. We say, oh, it was nothing at all. Yes. It wasn't an issue. It was something, and it's still annoying us. We have to find a way of naming and dealing with whatever the thing was. Otherwise, it comes back to haunt us. We can say forgiven. There's a brilliant note of C.S. Lewis's somewhere where he says, he's puzzling over that saying about when Peter says to Jesus, you know, if my brother offends me and I forgive him, and then how many times must I forgive him? As many as seven? says Peter, I think he's being massively generous there. And, you know, Jesus says, no, I tell you, I'm 70 times seven. I'm sure there's some legalist sitting there counting this off, saying, you've got five left. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but um, Lewis has a nice thing where he, he, he'd obviously got very, very upset by something somebody done, and he found himself, like he'd forgiven it. And then he kept on finding himself waking up and being annoyed by it again, or upset, or hurt, you know, thinking, feeling the wound. And he actually found himself saying, and every time he felt like that, he would go through, he'd think about it and say, no, I've forgiven. And he would consciously say, I forgive her, right? Every time the annoyance came back. And then the next night it would come back again. And he found himself saying, golly, I've forgiven her once, I've forgiven her a hundred times. And then he suddenly thought to himself, maybe that's what Jesus is on about. Maybe it's not that the person comes back and actually re-offends 70 times 7, but that just compassion, it may take us 70 times 7 goes of letting go to finally let go. Do you know what I mean? Another bit of the resentment, another little bit of the hurt comes up into, out of the unconscious and presents itself to the surface of mind and offers us a choice. Are we going to inflame it and rub it and make it worse and get angry again? Or are we going to say, that bit too, I let go of. 
in which case there's a kind of therapy going on. We're dealing with the resentment in the only way, the most charitable and lovely way that God can give us, bit by bit. It's too hard to forgive this debt. Well, it's like if somebody did owe you a lot of money and you just to write off a thousand quid would be quite difficult. But if you had a long time and you wrote off ten quid a week, it wouldn't feel quite so bad, would it? Do you know what I mean? That's the next. So maybe that's what the 70 times 7 is. So, to revert to the thing about forgive us our sins as we forgive, I'm glad that God makes a link in Christ between our being forgiven and our forgiving others. That's natural. That's part of the whole thing we went from God in heaven and hallowed to down on earth and his will, where the the channels of the forgiveness. But I'm glad it actually is that way around, that we are forgiven first, and because we're forgiven, we forgive. I think if we felt like unforgiven people, and at the same time we're asked, while still being unforgiven people, we're asked to be forgiving people, that would be an impossible ask. And I don't think Jesus makes that ask of us. So that's the first thing I want to say about forgiveness and our trespasses. I want to say we, are, we do it on the basis of having already been forgiven our massive debt. The second thing I want to say is that even knowing that, we still find it hard to do. Even knowing that, how completely forgiven we are, there are things which are very, very hard to forgive particularly when the hurt is not just to us, but to people we love. And um, particularly when one of the effects of the hurt is to have made us so full of anger, that the anger itself is more of a wound than the thing that caused us to be angry. Do you know what I mean? It's not just that you've, you've hurt me and, 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 and done this, this thing which feels almost unforgivable to me, but that now you've filled me with an anger I never knew I had and disturbed my tranquility. You know, so it's one thing to have robbed somebody of their, the goods in their house. But if the result of having had their house, as it were, the integrity of their house assailed by, by an intruder, they then have to keep seeing the absent thing and then feeling angry and then having to deal with the anger. Do you know, it's like a whole extra job you've been given and the, the thief has got off scot-free. And there's a long way from being in that resentful position to being in the glorious position of the, the poet, was it Li Bao, the Chinese um, Shan poet who came home to his little hut and found that you know, all his stuff had been taken, it was just the round hut and the, the open window and, and the kicked up charcoals of the fire. And he looked out and saw the moon and he, picked, he wrote one of his famous, most famous poems, he picked up a piece of charcoal and wrote this little haiku and it said, the moon in my window the thief left it behind. <laughs> yeah, that certainly would be great, great to get to that point. But if we haven't, we find it difficult. So now, let me return to that sovereign and saving truth, which is that this is the Lord's Prayer. It's our prayer, but we don't have to pray it alone. We pray it in him because we belong to the Lord. We pray it as children of God because we are children of God in the Son. So he can make up for me completely and fully whatever is lacking in my forgiveness of others. Absolutely he can. I can intend it. I can intend forgiveness to somebody in the most, in an ill-mannered way through gritted teeth. (laughs) But as long as I still intend it in spite of my feelings and 
pray it inside this prayer, which is Jesus' prayer, Jesus praying in me, then it will be done. Do you see that? And that's really an astonishing thing. And I find this, I mean, I, we can all experience that in a different way. One of the unexpected consequences for me of being ordained and becoming a priest, which is a thing I resisted for quite a long time, but after it happened, um, I found myself giving absolution. I found myself hearing confession and giving absolution entirely in the name of Christ and, you know, wearing my soul and as, as Christ's hands to touch and ears to hear and voice to speak a word of forgiveness. But I'm, obviously there's a bit of me that's still me while I'm being this thing. And I found an astonishing experience. I would hear in confession things which I would personally find it very hard at a personal level to speak forgiveness. And yet I felt I was able in complete clarity and power and peace to lay hands on a person and in the name of Christ pronounce an absolution. And I almost felt cleansed and burnished by the passage of that forgiveness flowing through me in purely role as priest. I suddenly would come away and find myself both convicted of sin and open to the forgiveness of God in a completely new way simply for having been the channel through which such astonishing forgiveness could pass and seeing the effect on people's lives of the peace such a moment of forgiveness brought them. And so I've become really persuaded by personal experience of the radical reality and power of the forgiveness of, 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 that God offers us in Christ Jesus. So now when I pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive, uh, others. I really don't beat myself up about how far I have managed to sort of twist my own arm and, and um, screw myself up into a grimace of niceness on the planet. You know, uh, you know I, I just let Jesus do it. <laughs> really, you know. um, so I, some of that is in this poem. Let's read the poem and just think, think a little bit about this. So, forgive us as we forgive. Forgive as we forgive. The prayer you give us comes home so close, yet radiates so far. We set the limits on our own forgiveness, as generous or grudging as we are. The wounds we give and take in all our weakness. The injuries that smolder, burning slow. The sins that others visited upon us are ours to hold or utterly let go. You tell the story of the wretched debtor, the one forgiven everything he owed, who then exacted payment to the letter from one who could not bear the given load. Oh, lift my given load that I forgiven might give away forgiveness, free as heaven. And it was that final prayer that I just, I can't deal with this thing until I say to Jesus, lift my given load that I've forgiven, might give away forgiveness, free as heaven. The one who was in the story, in the parable of the letters, who in both cases, both the big debt and the small debt, the debtor frankly admits that they can't pay it. 
And that's why they ask for forgiveness. And that's the basis on which one asks forgiveness. You actually say, I can't do this. So another thing I discovered, both from making confession myself and being a confessor, is that it's, confession is confession, it's not excuses. There's absolutely no point in going to confession in order to explain away your sins and say, well, if I'd have been different, if they hadn't done that, if, I, if only I, I'm really sorry. That was, but on the other hand, you know, if only it had been a sunny day rather than a wet day, the whole thing wouldn't have happened. You know, it's just not going to, or the other way around. Um, but, you know, it's just not going to work. You have to get to the bit where you say, I can't do this. I, I, I you know, I just, I didn't manage. I couldn't cope. I got it wrong. I screwed up. I can offer myself no excuse at all. It's just how it happened. Then I can ask forgiveness. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Um, so, um, yeah, the other thing that took me by surprise when I was writing that poem was the phrase, um, comes home so close, yet radiates so far. In one way, you could say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, is almost the most intimate line of the whole prayer. It's one of those moments when we say it all together in church that we're quite, quite glad that other people can't read our minds. Do you see what I mean? I mean like, that, it's, like, it's our business and God's business, and that's what we do. You know? and, um, and yet, if you think for a minute about the vast web of your, not only your relationships, but say relationships in a church or the way things work in the world, think how much turns on the capacity to let go or to retain, to have forgiveness or to have anger and resentment, to be exacting in what you require of other people but terribly slack with yourself. You know, there are economic implications, you know, there are political implications, there are historical implications. I mean, it's very difficult for us to rewrite this. But I think most people would say that whilst it was entirely understandable after the immense suffering uh, and personal loss of the Great War, whilst it was entirely understandable that the nations wanted to get reparations from Germany, war reparations, I think most historians would agree that the effect of the exaction of reparations on Germany was to create precisely the climate of victimhood and resentment which was exploited by Hitler and brought him to power. And that had we been more generous in victory, we would have made it much harder for a character like Hitler to have seized hold in Germany. So that there's a terrible irony whereby our ex precise desire to make an enemy pay and understand, you know, the point about making somebody pay is partly to do with the justice principle of saying, this hurt me or deprived me of something. I need you to be hurt or deprived so you understand what it was like. And that's understandable because you could say that sin is precisely a failure of imaginative empathy. If you say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, you know, so, so it's, all of that is understandable, but God in Christ cuts across that and says, don't do that, don't go there, don't do it. Remember how completely I'm forgiving you all the time. Pass that on. And if we had had the power to do that historically as a nation, leading the West, things might have been different. 
Yeah. I was just going to say, Rabbi said that after 2001, he said English and America and, and the Allies had stopped 40 days and just reflected. Because we wouldn't have now. Yeah. The contagion has gone on Exactly, exactly, exactly so. And in fact, we did a bit better with the Marshall Plan and everything after the Second World War. And I mean, th there's a famous, there's an absolutely brilliant, um, brilliant uh, uh, thing in Coventry Cathedral, which is what made Coventry Cathedral what it was, when Coventry Cathedral, the old cathedral, was burnt. I mean, it was just bombed to pieces in the war. And the dean of Coventry was brought out, you know, in the middle, middle of the night or the early hours. So the roof was gone, you know, the whole place was open and in flames, in a massive bombing raid on Coventry. And he came along, the then dean, and he saw that two of the charred timbers from what had been the sanctuary of the cathedral had fallen in such a way that they formed a cross which is now you know, famously the Coventry Cross. So he looked down at this cross and he knelt down in the ruins of what had been the sanctuary of his cathedral. And he said two words, and it's really significant it was two and not three. He said, Father, forgive. But he didn't say, Father, forgive them, those wicked Germans. Because, you know, we were doing... And as a result of that Father, forgive, that inclusiveness of the Father, forgive, what did Coventry do? massively, fantastically, wonderfully, when it had to rebuild its own cathedral. It twinned with Dresden, which we had completely destroyed and ruined their great cathedral and raised the gun our carpet bombing. And those two cathedrals of Dresden and Coventry were rebuilt with mutual aid. And Coventry, therefore, is one of the few cathedrals of England that's really found its vocation and understands what it's there for, that it is a centre for reconciliation and it's assisted reconciliation in Ireland and in all kinds of places and it's got a ministry of reconciliation, that cathedral, because, and you can go into the ruins, you see the beautiful new cathedral, but you can go into the ruins of the old one and you can just inscribed on the altar there where it was, are the words, Father, forgive. Um, and that just was a moment of inspiration that made him just use the two words and kind of include all of us. So when I was carrying on um, in my sequence in Parable and Paradox on the sayings of Jesus, when I came to those words, Father, forgive, in Luke, um, <clears throat> I've given this at the end. It's not part of the actual sequence on the Lord's Prayer, but I felt I wanted to give it. So if you look in the handout, it's the last poem. Um, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Obviously, Jesus is the one person who can say, Father, forgive them. The rest of us just have to say, Father, forgive, and include ourselves. But it's astonishing that he's saying this. They're driving the nails into his hands. Um, and I think this is one of, this is the absolute core of the grace and mercy of God that it's such good news that we should be forgiven, no matter what, that we can scarcely believe it. And we're constantly revising and saying, oh no, we'll only be forgiven if we've already done the forgiven. Or we'll only be forgiven if we've said the right words to God and said I special prayers saying I take you as my Lord. You know, we're always creating these things that we're supposed to have to do, aren't we? In order to do it. I don't see Jesus you know, handing the Roman soldiers a little Christian pamphlet while they're nailing him on and saying, like, have you really given your heart to the Lord? Have you done the, you know, now finally, he doesn't do that, does he? He can say, look, look, do the Alpha course and then we'll talk. You know, he just says, Father, forgive. 
I'm not saying you shouldn't do all those things, but you know, just, uh, the forgiveness starts everything. Um, and that, so I think that God, to make, because God could foresee that we were going to put, we were going to make conditions on a forgiveness of his that was unconditional. And we were going to set up things, and we were going to say, only if you've attained this. And we were going to raise it up on a mountaintop and have to have special rituals to get to it. He chose to make the instrument of forgiveness, the point and source of it, the moment at which you have, the moment at which human beings are doing the worst and most unspeakable thing that they could do to another human being, let alone to God himself. And then he's going to say, this is where it starts, here, on this rubbish tip called Golgotha, on the dumping ground. And if I can forgive you there, then I can forgive you anywhere. There's no place so low that you can sink that I can't find you and forgive you. And that seems to me why he, why the cross, you know, rather than the mountaintop experience, is actually the place from which forgiveness flows into the world. So I tried to put something of this into this poem. That's why I sort of bunged it on at the end here. Father, forgive. And so forgiveness flows. Flows from the very wound our hatred makes. Flows through the taunts, the curses and the blows flows through our wasted world, a healing spring, welling and cleansing, washing all the marks away, the scores and scars of every wrong. Forgiveness flows to where we need it most, right in the pit and smithy of our sin just where the dreadful nails are driven in, just where our woundedness has done its worst. We know your cry of pain should be a curse, yet turn to you and find we have been blessed. We know not what we do, but heaven knows for every sin on earth, forgiveness flows. So that's, that's where it flows from. So the person who says, you can say this prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those, has the authority to do it. <laughs> and if he is saying this prayer with you, then you can say as much of it as you can. Just mean as much of it as you can. And entirely ask him and let him mean the rest of it on your behalf. And you can always do that part of it that says, as we ourselves have been forgiven. Yeah? You know that. And you can let the rest of it. And of course, it is simply true that the more you rest in the knowledge of yourself as a gratuitously forgiven sinner, the easier it is for you to just let, let it out a little bit more. And there's a kind of blessing in letting it go, but maybe only bit by bit. So I, I've talked to you, you know... <laughs> Rented on for half an hour here, so um, let's just let's just pause on that for a minute because this is quite uh, tender stuff, isn't it? Um, so nobody has to say anything they don't want to say, and I, you know, and I, if talking through this revised painful things, you know, and you're only 45 into the 75, 70 times seven bits of forgiving somebody, you know, maybe you can do one or two of them while you're here, you know, but. <laughs> Um, I realise that, so don't feel any obligation. But do you want to just come back to me on any of that and the way I've interpreted that, or the way, by contrast, or the same, or whatever that you've interpreted? How have you managed, for however many years you've been saying this prayer, to say this bit of it? 
what's been going on in your mind when you've said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. Insofar as that's shareable or printable. I remember when I first wanted to, well, one of the things I learned about forgiveness was quite painful first of all, because I was in a situation where I felt very wronged. Mm. And um, everybody I spoke to also said, yes, you've been very wronged. Yeah. And I was so sort of, I don't know, I hate, it was such a painful time, it was a horrible situation to be in, but, you know, when I was speaking to people, it was really good to speak to them, because it made me think, yes, this is wrong, you know, I'm in the right, this is wrong. Yeah, yeah. And um, and then I spoke to somebody who um, is Christian, and she's somebody who, um, I was at school with, and I always used to think, so she's the most wonderful person, I was just wish she was a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> and then I suddenly realized that she was one of the person because she was baby. And she said, straight away, you just said, you've got to forgive that person. And it was like somebody hitting me in the stomach. Yeah. Because rather than her, uh, because I wanted to speak to her, I thought, yeah, she's my, she cares for me, she loves me. She's going to agree with me also. She's going to say, yes, yeah, she'll be agreed. And what she said was, you've got to forget that person. Yeah. And it was so, I knew she was right immediately. It's like, oh. Yeah, yeah. And it was really incredible what happened from then when I actually went to that person and um, asked for their forgiveness. Um, That's interesting. And then they they sort of forgave because I suddenly was able to sort of begin to see it from their point of view. Anyway, it it was a, just a massive turn point and a huge huge learning curve. Yeah. But I think also the release of a bird in some yeah. way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm living in sort of like Yeah. So you do what you can in your way. I mean, the other thing about forgiveness is that um, you can... It's a, there's something of that old saying about one can lead a horse to water, but 20 cannot make him drink. And I think you have to recognize that you make forgiveness freely available to somebody else. But it doesn't mean that they've received or accepted it. Because in order to be forgiven, in order for your forgiveness, which is very important and helpful for you to offer to finally take hold and effectively liberate that person from their sin, they have to need the forgiveness, they have to ask for it. So to ask for forgiveness, to say to anybody, forgive me, is to acknowledge that something went wrong for you and to be ready to be forgiven and have it taken off you. So a lot of the difficulty when you've been hurt by somebody is that somebody doesn't even recognize the nature of the thing they've done, or if they do recognize it, but they're denying it and bigging themselves up in order not to think about it or whatever. So. In order to be forgiven, that person may have to radically reassess their own state of play. Now, you could say, it would be tempting to say, well, I'm not even going to get around to forgiving this person until they get their act together sufficiently to ask me. Yeah? yeah. That's got a kind of logic to it. What's the point of offering something they're not ready to accept? The problem with that is you t put yourself entirely in their control then. You say, I'm not going to take an important and obvious step forward in my own spiritual path until this person who's actually facing the wrong direction turns around and does it too. And that's really not a good idea. 
Also, sometimes the first move has to be made by the injured party. And that's basically the story of salvation history. You know, we rebel against God in the garden and do exactly the wrong thing. He ends up coming down, looking for us, finding us, bringing us out, saying, okay, you're uncomfortable, you're naked, and actually making clothes for us. If you look in that story, we had a fig leaf, and he says, no, I can do better than that, you know, just to measure you up. You know, and it says he made, he made, made, made clothes for a lot of animal skins. You know, um, somebody said in the 17th century, God who came to meet us as a savior did not scruple even to serve us as a tailor. <laughs> he made the first move and enabled stuff for us to happen. And sometimes that's the hardest thing. And you may be really, genuinely, maybe the best version of loving your enemies ever is to make the first move. And the very fact that you're willing to make the first move may be the thing that prompts them to realize that they need to make their move. They turn them around. But even if it doesn't, you know, you, you've done what you can, and you can leave them and the forgiveness you've offered them in God's hands. But all I'm wanting to say is, I'm not going to get anywhere if I think that God won't forgive me until I've forgiven them. The only way I'm going to get there is by feeling and knowing myself to be more and more a forgiven person. That's the way around Jesus tells the story. That the person who'd been forgiven the debt didn't forgive. But the implication of the way Jesus tells the story, the, 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 the master says, I forgave you all that big debt. Why didn't you forgive the others? So presumably, that's because the master knows that being forgiven is what enables us to forgive. So even as you say, I'm sorry, God, I just cannot forgive them. Forgive me for not doing that. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to say to God. Because it's on your heart, right? There's no point in telling God anything that, that's not true there, because he can see it in your heart anyway. So you might as well say what's the case. God, I cannot forgive that odious bastard. So <laughs> please forgive me for not doing that. But as soon as I say, please forgive me for not doing that, I'm acknowledging that I should. I'm completely receiving the forgiveness. Thank you for giving, for forgiving me for being such an unforgiving person. It's really good to be filled with your forgiveness. Doesn't that somehow start to soften the stone? Doesn't that, you know, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle dew from heaven. We could do with a bit of that in this hard ground. Doesn't the daily receipt of the dew of God's forgiveness, even if it takes months, <laughs> gradually begin to soften the clay. Be patient. God is very patient. You know, he's patient with you. He's... And then you, what are we appealing to in the end? The love of God. So I would always go back to 1 Corinthians 13. And I would want to say, you know, love keeps no score of wrongs. Bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things. One's just trying to get back into that love. But... It's, I mean, one of the things that come, it's one thing to have been hurt by some random stranger, you know, a thief in the night. It's quite another thing to have been hurt by somebody we love. And the more we love a person, the more open and tender to them that we are, the more they can actually hurt us. And those are the deepest wounds that people feel, and, and they're the wounds that most need forgiveness and to be forgiven, but they're the ones that are hardest to do because the pain is so excruciating. So this is why we have to go back again to the fact that Jesus speaks his words of forgiveness while the nails are being driven in. There's a point where we have to say to God, I'd like to forgive, I can't because it hurts too much. 
And that's the point when Jesus can really start talking to us. Because he can say, yes, I know how much it hurts. If you want to understand the mystery of why I'm suffering on the cross, why there's a spear in my heart and nails in my hands, it's because I'm in the business of forgiving. And I know that's what forgiveness feels like. But that's why I did it. I did it so I can be in there with you. Then you can give him the pain or the hurt of being hurt by somebody you love. And give that pain and he can feel that pain with you. Because of course that's exactly what's happened to us. He came unto his own. And his own received him not. You know, the hurt that the Messiah felt was the pain of rejection from somebody who was his bride. That's where what he's forgiven out of. But that's a very intimate matter. I mean, I can talk about it publicly, you know, but we need, that's where we go into, when you pray to your father, go into your own inner room and close the door, you know. But you have to let him work on that stuff. And that's, that's where it happens in the Lord's Prayer. It happens in this petition. And that's, again, why I, I almost feel embarrassed to say the Lord's Prayer in public sometimes. Because we're all rattling it along, and we get to say, wait a minute, what, what, what we do? You know, we've all just talked about the stuff we never talk about. And heard our neighbours do it, but it's all covered in the, in the, sort, of, the sort of brief carapace of the familiar. But underneath, is this stuff. But we don't have long to do it in church, so that's why we have to go home and say it again, you know, as though we met it. Yeah, I think he's often saying, one of the things he's saying there is that we always talk about how hard it is to forgive and never talk about how necessary it is to be forgiven. We're always kind of much more conscious of where others have offended against us than we are of where we've offended against others. So we say it's difficult to forgive. But of course, it's quite difficult to be forgiven. You know, to be forgiven and to receive forgiveness is to finally acknowledge that we ourselves, that there was an element of fault in us. And we're in such an adversarial world, you know, particularly in these intimate things, you know, when people are getting divorced or houses and families are being split up, the very nature of the legal process almost pushes people into an attitude of arrogance and unforgiveness and makes them seek utterly to blame the other. And then that creates resentment and counter-blame. Because the devil's way of doing things is the exact opposite of God's, is that the proper thing to do when you've been accused is to accuse back, isn't it? That we defend ourselves by accusation. We're always looking to see that somebody else's sins are dirtier than ours in order that by at least by implication and comparison we should be clean. I mean, why is it that they have to have a separate wing and a special prison, you know, for category for sex offenders? It's because, you know, all the, all, the, all the thieves and fraudsters and, you know, common or garden murderers have finally found someone that they can feel righteous in comparison with. And they'll, they'll attack them, you know, in order to have an imputed righteousness. I'm better than that. Well, we do the same, just in another level, another scale. We just try and find somebody well. And of course, it's a stupid way of trying to regulate our moral self-worth. Because the world will never be lacking in somebody that's worse than you. So you can crow as much as you like. But equally, the world will never be lacking in somebody that's better than you. So then you can start beating yourself up. And either way is madness. 
until you accept that, you know, we've all sinned and all fallen short of the glory of God, and you just say, I'm okay because Jesus, God in Jesus Christ has said yes to me. And I'm his beloved child. And he'll love me just as much if I do really well today as he will if he loves me. He'll love me tomorrow if I completely screw up. His love is assured, and from that assurance, I can start to be gentle with myself and with others. But as long as I have to go around finding somebody unforgiven in order to feel morally righteous over against them, you know, I'm on a hiding to nothing. But it's very tempting. It's very tempting to work with this kind of imputed or comparative, or this kind of comparative righteousness. Well, I'm, you know, I may be a bit of a, you know, whatever it is I think I am, but I'm not as bad as that. Fill in the blanks. One of the fundamental biblical ideas, I mean, it's right there in the whole doctrine of ten, is the idea of one person somehow being able to embody or represent a whole people. You know, God in the end, in Christ, Jesus embodies the whole of humanity you know, and brings it to God. And as in Adam all dies, seed saying Christ shall be made alive. And, um, you know, in a weird way, you know, the, the mockery or the, the cynical political aphorism that it is expedient that one man should die for the people turns out in God's providence to be a beautiful miracle. And it, particularly if you, are, if you yourself have been clothed with the mantle of representativeness by another person, that actually empowers you to speak. I can remember when I was, not long after I was ordained, when I was a chaplain in um, Anglia Ruskin, and I was wore, wore the collar and, you know, was, was a sign of what I was and the availability. And um, I noticed somebody in waiting in the lobby outside, and they, I could see they wanted to come up to my room, but they, wouldn't, they, were, I waited, they waited a long time, pacing up and down. Eventually this person knocked on my door and came in, and there was a guy from Liverpool. And um, eventually, after lots of other sort of things, he finally got around to telling me that he had been abused as a child in um, Liverpool by a priest, as it happened to a Roman Catholic priest, but it doesn't matter which church, and I'm an Anglican priest, but it was a guy in a collar. And he'd been, he was getting involved in various legal processes and was part of a group, of, and he was trying to live traumatically reliving it all. But what he had never heard from the church, because the church, you know, the Roman, was trying to guard itself from legal implications and all that stuff, was somebody saying sorry, right? And I just suddenly felt this complete conviction that on behalf of the entire church, I myself personally had to receive that blame and absorb it and say sorry, which I did. And I let him, I said, tell me, as though I were him, what you need to say to that priest. And I opened myself up to a torrent of abuse, which the guy just poured out, but I invited it. And then I, I, I said, I'm sorry. And then I asked him if I could bless him. And it was an amazing moment of healing for him and in a way for me that I could. And I laid hands on him and blessed him. And we had this transaction, which in a way was about stuff I wasn't, you know, there to see. He wasn't. But somehow I had been able to become that person for him and effect a little bit of healing. Uh, you know, and I was very upset the way I had to go and pray about it and let it go to somebody else, you know, but I had absorbed. The pain and anger was astonishing, you know, it just poured out. 
So I, maybe that's the right thing to do. Maybe to say, I mean, I think when big when politicians do it, and when you see apologise for historical things, I mean, there's all kinds of issues. But I think if it's a person to person, if a person in their culture feels oppressed by your culture, but you can be an example of that culture coming to them and saying sorry, I think that's not a bad thing to do at all. Um, so, so I think, I mean, it's very interesting in Matthew 25. Um, you know, the parable of the sheep and the goats. We always read that. We very much individualise that. But actually, in Matthew, it says. He will gather the nations together and he will divide the nations. So it may be that um, at another level, all this forgiveness is really there for us as nations, but quite how we take hold of it as nations is hard to say. We certainly have to operate as individuals, but we are all of us representatives in some way or another. You know, each of us is representative of our gender as a whole, each of us is representative to some degree of our age bracket as a whole, you know. If people have got feelings about old people, we can be an old person who's an exception to them, or feelings about young people, or whatever. You know, there's a sense in which we can be vicarious. I mean, that instinct to see the other is, but it's all got to be done voluntarily. Because the other side of it is when you, when a person gets attacked, because of what somebody, as an individual, because of what, what somebody thinks about their whole tribe. You know, and that's a false loading onto somebody of a mental. It's one thing to accept it voluntarily. It's quite another thing, you know. And I felt that too. I remember when there was, again, some clerical abuse cases coming out. And I, you know, I was just once cycling across the green in Cambridge, going to take a service again in my dog collar. And I, again, suddenly, like random blokes in a couple of, blokes drinking lager in a bench by the river suddenly stood up and started shouting at me and saying, was I going off to abuse some boys? You know, I was just cycling off to take a service. You know? There's this anger floating about, looking for a place. And a lot of human evil is done by this kind of dislocated anger. And again, that's another thing where Jesus, I think, is saying, if you have to dump your stuff somewhere, dump it on me. But, you know, I can absorb it. I can deal with it. Bring it to me. In a way, we've already come to where we are. In order to try and deal with this question of forgiveness at all, I had to speak of the cross um, and of why, in some way, God has made the cross both the place where you see the worst of human malice and hatred flowing out of us towards others, towards this helpless man on the cross, but through him to God, and the way God, at that point and from the cross, reverses the flow and forgiveness flows out. Um, because now we come to the... I remember when the first time it was Series 3 or something, maybe it was Series 3 or it was the old alternative service book. I can't remember when it was. I first became aware of the newer translation of the Lord's Prayer, which for a while, I don't think they do it anymore, after, after our, our Father in Heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Um, and then it said... Um, do not bring us to the time of trial, but deliver us from evil. And I remember talking to a vicar at the time and saying, well, actually, this temptation, the word temptation has changed meaning since it was first used to translate that. And now we think of it as, you know, temptation is like oh, an extra creamy cake or, you know, double chocolate thing or, you know, naughty but nice. Um, but temptation meant trial. It meant being pushed to a, brought to a point where you, 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 
you are put under intolerable pressure or you're pushed to an extreme or you're tried for something you know, that, that, that the real meaning of do not lead us into temptation was do not bring us to the time of trial but deliver us from evil i.e. But, but there's something about the time of trial suddenly resonated in me and I thought a thing which should have been obvious even if I'd been just using do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil but the fact that it was the time of trial that phrase suddenly brought home to me a shocking fact which I had never I still haven't, I'd never heard anybody preach on this. I'd never heard a vicar or a Sunday school teacher even comment or explain on this. If this is the Lord's Prayer, and if Jesus is the beloved of if Jesus is, is and he surely is, will have his prayers answered, how is it that, God, that this prayer is shockingly not answered? If he says, do not bring us to the time of trial, but deliver us from evil, more or less, you know, a few pages over on the gospel, what happens? He is brought to the time of trial and he is delivered over into the hands of wicked men and he's mocked and scourged and vilified, you know, and eventually crucified, having been tried. How can he pray so long and teach us to pray, do not bring us to the time of trial, and so signally not be taken away, but rather go into the time of trial. And of course, just in asking that question, which I'm asking this on it, I was brought into that thing, oh yes, but he is not only prayer, but the answer to prayer. He is not only the prayer in his humanity, but in his Godhead, he is the one who hears the prayer and answers it. So I kind of wrestle with that in this next poem. And maybe it's better at this point to read the poem, which ends with a series of questions, and then open it out um, rather than... So, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Oh, do not bring us to the time of trial. Deliver us. Deliver us from evil. How is it? that your own petitions fail as evil slams its hammer to the anvil. For you were brought to trial and not delivered. You let the prince of darkness do his worst. The sun shrank from that sight. The whole world shivered. The fount of blessing let himself be cursed. How is it? Is it that your dereliction makes possible the answer to my prayer? Am I delivered by your bitter passion as you face every evil for me there? Unanswered answerer, forsaken friend, bring me to my beginning through your end. If we're right that in some sense it was for us, like the old hymn, I love there is a green hill far away, we may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. If in some sense he's standing in there for us, going through something on our behalf that we couldn't go through ourselves, but also to be with us, whatever it is we do, then there's an astonishing thing going on 
in his giving this prayer to the disciples? Did he know from the beginning when he said them to them to pray, when he encouraged them and us to pray, do not bring us to the time of trial, but deliver us from evil, that that prayer could only be answered if he himself went to the time of trial on our behalf. And that he knew he would do that. He knew that he would give us a prayer that was his prayer, but that, would be, that part of it would be answered for us by his not asking that for himself. Nevertheless, I pray this cup will pass from me. That's what the prayer is. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He quotes his own prayer at the moment that he himself goes in to the time of trial. If that's true, then it must make this moment an astonishing, almost a moment of trembling when I keep praying that now and ask for an answer that I, well, I know the answer is that yes, yes, I have been delivered from the time of trial. I've been delivered from evil because somebody stood in the breach for me. You know, I'm like, I, mean, I don't know, who, I think they did to become Maximilian Kolbe when he went into the, into the death for... The person he rescued lived for a long time, didn't they? And they, they, they? I don't know the name of the person that he stood in for. But they know what it is. And Barabbas knew, you know, but ultimately we know somebody came in for me. So again, that's where a translation helped me. Lead us not into temptation, you know, might just sound like, you know, help me to avoid the occasion of sin. But I think there's something rather more profound than that going on in this. And that's why I put it in a sense in question form. It's, you know, Am I delivered by your bitter passion? Yes, I think I am. But I'm still astonished, you know. And can it be that I should gain an interest in myself? Does he for me? Who caused his pain? For me? Who him, you know, did that amazing love? I mean, that, that, that sense of astonishment, you get that in, in that, that great hymn. We have to keep coming back to that. It's not, you know... The difficulty is it can be turned into pious cliches, and but it is really an astonishing mystery and a cause of trembling and amazement. So that, I think, is there in the Lord's Prayer that we kind of rattle through. Um, um, so we're touching on, a, I mean, uh, the atonement that thing whereby through the cross and resurrection of Jesus we're delivered and saved and brought close to God is a mystery. And I think the church has got itself very much tied up in knots in trying to, you know, as it were, prioritise or reify one of the many models of how that mystery worked over against all the others. Um, there's a great book on the atonement um, called Christus Victor. Uh, which points out that there's probably about five different models or metaphors in the New Testament about what's going on there. You know, there's one of ransom, that we're like ransomed captives and somebody has to pay a ransom. There's one of, you know, penal substitution, like there was a punishment that should have fallen on us and fell on him. But there's lots of others. There's this kind of rescue, um, there's example, there's solidarity, there's transfer from one kingdom to another. There's a bunch of them out there. Just like scientists, you know, come up with different models of the same thing. The phenomenon of the same, for one, it looks, you know, look at it like this, it's a bit like waves. Look at it like this, it's a bit like particles. <laughs> the mystery of light. Um, so, actually, about four or five of those, of those um, 
models are all in, in, in there is a green hill far away. You know, um, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. That's two already, you know. Um, um, it is a mystery. But somewhere in there, there is something about standing in. Somewhere in there, there's a sense that, that he goes in and takes something on my behalf and turns it into good for me in some way. And um, that seems to me to be somehow wrapped up in the mystery of this prayer. I wonder if the disciples prayed it differently after Good Friday. You know. Um, whether all the other times they prayed it, they'd just really been praying it from the outside. And after that, they kind of prayed it from the inside. And it's understandable because these prayers, these prayers that you learn by rote as a child are very precious and you don't want to mess with them in lots of ways. Um, but I think you can get deeper and deeper meanings of them without changing. I don't think I have to change the words from leaders and to temptation as long as I understand. And in a way, the core thing is deliver. Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil is... And then the word deliver, you see, deliver is another word that now we talk about delivering a parcel. It's a completely different sense of the word. So deliver is derived ultimately from the, when we know how in some changes in languages over the centuries, Bs became Vs, so, which you can understand in terms of hearing. So this is basically from the Latin word to liberate, to set free. Liberate us. I mean, in Latin, the prayer is liberanos amalos. Liberate us from evil. Set us free. Deliver us. Liberate us, you know. I mean, the word liberation is right, you know. I am, and the idea that that does a fantastic understanding of evil, that evil is precisely the thing that constrains you, but that where the Spirit of the God, Lord is, there is freedom, you know. So there's a whole thing, and also there's the real question of what do we mean by evil, you know, there's a whole other thing to think about that. And, um, you know, the fact that there do seem to be, as it were, spirits and powers that are just genuinely oppressive and habits of mind and casts of attitude in people and institutions from which they need to be liberated. And that, that, that power, Jesus casting out demons, Jesus saying, you know, be free. Jesus is saying to people who are bound and restricted, stand up and walk, you know, and the person who's self-harming, you know, that the demons are taking on. That sense of needing to set people free and the thing they're being set free from is evil, you know, is really quite an important thing. And the idea is that Jesus has the power to do that. I once um, went to a talk on the Lord's Prayer by a a priest who was involved in, in um, deliverance ministries, it's called, you know, as, as I was at one point. I, I was briefly a bishop's advisor on deliverance ministry. And this guy said, every time we say the Lord's Prayer, we are performing a minor exorcism. Minor in the sense that a major exorcism is where you think you've identified a specific evil and you address it by name, and there's a whole can of worms there, and what's psychology and what's symbolism and what's not and all of that. But simply to say, to, to address God, and to say to God, take this evil away, unbind this person, liberate this person, let them no longer be oppressed. That is technically an exorcism. It's saying, get rid of that, 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 that wrongness, that invisible wrongness, which may have both spiritual and cultural and psychological and political roots. But none of those things is a physically embodied thing, are they? They become embodied, but they're part of the way we think and the, you know, ideas at work. So, you know, 
there are evils which do bind people, evils of prejudice, you know, evils, evils of, of a vengeful spirit, um, whatever it might be. So to say, to have this Im embedded thing, help us, free us, unbind us, let me, let us, let us, let us have the freedom of maneuver to start doing the things that we saw when we stood on holy ground and hallowed your name. You know, that was the mountaintop. Now we're in the valley of the shadow of death. We need a bit of light here. We need something to, to set us free. And um, there it is, libera, you know, deliver. Yeah, don't, don't, you know, square my trial to my proportioned strength. You know, don't, don't test me beyond my limits would be one way of, of, of understanding this. But if we take the other sense of temptation in the quite straightforward sense, lead us not, and somebody asks, why would God want to lead us into temptation in the first place? If you think about it, it's a very curious bit of phrasing. It varies between two of the Gospels. But one of the Gospels says that after his baptism, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. That's a very curious thing. So in one way, God is leading him into temptation. So you could say that Jesus has the authority to say, lead us not into temptation, because he knows what it's like. But also he can say it with confidence because he's done it for us, that he has been in that place. He's unmasked the devil for what it is. The devil always appears as an angel of light. And, you know, oh, look, you can have this mountaintop religious experience or you can run things from the top of the pinnacle or you can, you know, have economic command. and turn, you know. But no, don't let me go there. And he's saying on behalf of his disciples, I've been there on, on your behalf. That's done with and defeated. You don't have to go there because I've been there. You can pray. Lead us not. So there's a sense in which, again, it's, you know, it, it, it's his prayer. But as I say, the word temptation has kind of dwindled. Not accidentally. I mean, you know, the whole site word sin... Um, you know, weirdly, and there's a certain point when we're being repressed in one way that we sort of sexualize all of that because that was the smallest and the least and the little sort of piccadillas and we could always just... It's much easier for somebody who's involved in massive corporate economic sin to, to say it's much more convenient for them to say sin is all about sex because you can always point the finger at somebody else. But if you say sin is about my entire set of economic relations and spiritual relations with everybody then it becomes a bit more alarmingly, you know, sort of pertinent. So Dorothy Sayers, a wonderful writer, not only for the detective stories, but the translations of Dante, but she's a great theological writer. And she's got a fabulous essay called The Other Six Deadly Sins. And she's got a wonderful bit in that she was visiting Italy. Obviously, she's working on the Dante thing. And she was visiting Italy, I think, just after the war. And, um, uh, she happened to wear, I don't know, she might have been wearing, it was a hot Italian day, and she was wearing a short-sleeved dress. And she was turned away from a church door for not being decently dressed because she had a short-sleeved dress on. Well, were, this was 19, you know, late 40s or early 50s Italy. So, so she recalls this in the essay, and she says, whilst they were turning me away, I noticed that they weren't turning away the very expensively dressed men, you know, mafiosi-looking ca characters, who nobody stopped and said, I think you're rather too expensively dressed, to be honest. You know, in, in, you know they, they, they didn't, nobody said, your dress suggests to me that you may be an economic sinner. 
They just wanted to drag you, grab the woman by a naked arm and doubtless get a feel of her flesh while they were doing it, you know. You know, like that thing in King Lear where Shakespeare says, you know, when they were used to publicly flog hordes, supposedly, and he says, thou, um, thou, thou naughty beetle, thou dost hotly lust to use her in that kind, wherefore thou punishest her, you know. You know. The, the, the hypocrisies are just blindingly obvious. But that whole desire to narrow sin down to a slightly sort of prurient interest in other people's sexual footballs is a complete, I mean, a, you know, apart from being very tedious, it's a complete diversionary tactic. It's entirely an attempt, smoke and mirrors on the part of to throw our moral spotlight somewhere else, preferably on someone else, and you particularly, that's why it's particularly odious when, you know, economically compromised straight men have a go at gay people. I mean, setting aside the moral question, there may be people on both sides of the divide, but all I'm saying in terms of, of removing the, the, the log from your own eye before you remove the speck from your neighbor's eye, um, that I, you notice the church and, you know, the establishment are very hasty to condemn sins which by themselves will get you socially ostracized and marginalize you anyway, and have deep reluctance to condemn the sins that will make a big social success of you and win you political fame and power. Those are the sins, the sins particularly the worldliness. So the classic English phrase is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we've decided, you know, we don't believe in the devil, we, we can really enjoy the titillating prospect of talking about the flesh, especially when it's other people's sins, which we will condemn and enjoy at the same time in the Sunday papers. Uh, meantime, the world just has its way with us. And we're just completely worldly. Uh, and live, as it were, as if there were no, you know, no other world and as if the poor didn't count. But we can be as moralistic as we like, providing... <laughs> so we narrow the words down, do you see? And um, we just have to become aware of it and go like, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to have somebody else set for me. That's why, I mean, I, you know, I have friends on both sides of the divide about equal marriage and about all kinds of things like that. And everybody, I mean, a lot of my American friends, my approach is read a lot of me, the Americans are desperate for me to make a statement one way or the other on these issues. I happen to have quite strong views, but I'm not doing it at all because that just fuels the whole idea that that question... I mean, it's obviously very important and pertinent for a person who's personally involved in it. But it's the presumption that that is the only moral question in town. Yeah. I won't have it. I'm just, there's enough pundits out there talking about it. I just have taken a vow of silence on the subject. I'm not going to discuss it either way. Unless with a person who comes to me personally in agony, you know, and it's as my pastor, in which case I'll discuss it to their heart's content in private. But I will not make any public pronouncements on any issue of sexual morality whatsoever simply because I want to say there is another kind of, you know, do you know what I mean? There are plenty of other people who do that for me. I'm not saying it's a taboo subject, but I'm just saying, let's talk about how we live together economically. <laughs> and let's talk about how we treat each other with courtesy. And let's talk about how we demonize or don't demonize each other. And let's talk about what it means to love each other before we get on to all that other stuff. One of the reasons why I did this book, Parable and Paradox, was partly this feeling that there were so many contrary and amplified voices, and I thought poetry would just help me to concentrate on that I just, as I say, wanted to sit with the gospel at the feet of Jesus and puzzle out, at least for myself, what is going on here. 
And that's where these poems on the Lord's Prayer come from. There's about 50 of them. And you just try. It's a very odd thing. Um, to culture, I just had an amazing um, sort of piece of news, which was that um, uh, I had a letter about a couple of months ago from a Chinese Christian poet to say that he was translating all 50 of these sonnets into Chinese together with the biblical sayings on children. And I love Chinese poetry, you know, so I'm really interested in, you know, I don't have any Chinese, but I read a lot of Chinese poetry in translation. So the idea that these poems would then be translated into Chinese, and I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe this is just a fantasy, you know, I get letters from fantasies every so often, you know. But then I got a letter from my publisher saying a publisher based in both Chengdu and Hong Kong had contacted them for the copyright. And since I've met, you know, I've met, Skyped with this person, and it's going to be out, you know, by the end of the year. This, so, you know, and I don't even know how one's going to begin the cultural transmission of all of that. But I have confidence in the scriptures. I have confidence that, you know, if a person in China reads the words of Jesus and reflects on them and reads somebody else reflecting on the words of Jesus, that will create, you know, a reflection in itself. And I think that desire to, to, to tune out the other stuff and come back to something direct from Jesus is really helpful. So let me go on to the last of these seven poems. So, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I always used to like the sort of satisfying sound when we did it at school, and we prayed this prayer at home as well. Forever and ever. Amen. And I remember my sister and I really, partly because we were relieved we got to the end of it by then, you know, family press. But the ever and ever, I think that's a chance something childlike about that. Forever and ever, amen, we used to say in a big sort of, you know. And uh, we also used to pick up forever and ever. And, and you say forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, you know. But of course, uh, we probably glossed over what is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever, amen, or the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours. So... That's quite a radical thing to say. Uh, and uh, you'll see how I approach it in this, in this poem. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. The kingdom, and the power, and the glory. The very things we all want for ourselves. We want to be the hero of the story and leave the others on their dusty shelves. How subtly we seek to keep the kingdom. How brutally we hold on to the power. Our glory always means another's thraldom. But still we strut and fret our little hour. What might it mean to let it go forever? To die to all that desperate desire. To give the glory wholly to another. Throw all we hold into that holy fire. A wrenching loss, and then a sudden freedom in given glories and a hidden kingdom. I just wanted to confront the, the, the radical nature of what, we, what Jesus is telling us and what we're saying. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. It really is true that the, the entire way we've been brought up, especially if we're in any sense successful or deemed honestly, is all about kingdom rule. It's all about obtaining power, and it's all about getting glory. 
And in one way, and I'm not, I, I'm castigating as someone saying those very things we all want for ourselves. But then there's a bit of a secret. Actually, it's bloody hard work. Constantly trying to be bigged up and big yourself up and get annoyed if other people don't big you up and assert your authority and maintain your power. And then the sheer drudgery of having constantly to preen your feathers and maintain your glory. You've, only, you've no sooner bought the car that is finally going to assert your power and glory than your neighbour goes and buys one which is even better. And you're back on the bottom rung again. Oh, bloody hell, you know, I'm going to work even harder. Get another car, and now I've done that. And then, do you know what I mean? And it goes right down to our kids. It's like, you know, they go on and say, you know, I got 10 likes on my Facebook post. And they say, yeah, well, I got 15 on mine. Oh, no! You know, and there's a point at which you suddenly, you know, I'm really tired. I just can't stand the whole drudgery of keeping up appearances and just making this stuff happen. Actually, what might it mean to let it go? What might it mean to actually not care, frankly? Not really to give a toss whether somebody thinks I'm good or not. Whether I've got, you know, to like just... And then the discovery that it was never mine in the first place, that the kingdom, the power, and the glory are much too hard and dangerous and corrosive and heavy a burden for any human being to have as their own. You know, it just crushes you. You know, Shakespeare right? uneasy lies the head that wears the crown, or the bit, the bit I quoted from Macbeth in here, in this poem, you know, um, a tale told by an idiot. You know, you know uh, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and his, then is heard no more. That just to say, oh, I don't care. Let God be God. I'm going to have a day off from trying to be God for a change. I'm not going to fix everything. I'm not going to, I remember, I love the saying in the Zen, in the Zen saying, you know, sitting quietly, doing nothing. Spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Do you know, thank you, God. You know, just sometimes letting God be God is set up for you as like this big moral thing that you're going to have to do this incredible act of self-sacrifice and take yourself off the throne and put God on the throne. Have you heard that kind of language? And okay, you know, if you're really addicted to being on the throne, maybe there is a bit of a wrench. But the other side of it is then you're off duty. It's playtime. You know, God is actually in charge of stuff. So... You don't have to take complete moral responsibility for all things. I mean, God will ask you to do stuff and you can gladly do it. But he already loves you anyway. And do, do, do you see what I mean? It's, it's just kind of, maybe it's my time of life or something, but I'm actually just got to the point where, I mean, and, and it's a particular subtle pressure on clergy as well, I think. You know, they've got to be able to fix everything and they've got to be a sort of pseudo-messiah and they've got to, you know. And you just think, do you know, this job is already taken. God has just beautifully done it and is doing it. And he does it through, I just, kind of I, so in the end weirdly on the one hand I see thine is the kingdom the power and the glory as a radically subversive statement that all the pretensions of the politicians and the leaders are, you know, are wrong and God's got it all but I also see it as a sort of invitation to bunk off really and just do you know what I mean and, and so that's why I say at the end a wrenching loss and then a sudden freedom. Yes. And then I said, then there's a curious, there's a paradox, isn't there? He who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will save it. You know, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it bears no seed fruit. But if it falls into the ground, it bears a rich harvest. 
You have to let go and really let go, and let go like not caring what happens next. But paradoxically, when you have let go yourself and let go of the kingdom and have given it all back, you give it all back to God, you put it back in the holy fire, you know? And then, funnily enough, you're still here. He's given you yourself. But the self he's given you is now received entirely as gift. It's all gift. Do you know what I mean? It's completely gratuitous. So there's a kind of lightness and freedom in that gratuity of the received self, the self given back to you by God after you gave yourself to him. In which, in the end, he has a responsibility. And that explains that curious paradox of Jesus's, where he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek, meek and humble in heart, you will find rest, un- rest unto yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, an awful lot of when I was being trained as a priest and we were told that the stole was um, like the yoke, the oxen, you know. But it felt like, and now tied to the bottom of my stole are two huge heavy bucket loads of parish responsibility. But actually, that's not like that. It's Christ's yoke. So when I put the yoke on, I'm also putting Christ on or Christ in or whatever. And the shoulders that carry the yoke of the, the stole are not my shoulders anymore at all. They're Christ's. And I can really say to him, we just hold this for me for a while, you know, because I'm going swimming. Do you see what I mean? There's just a relief, I think, in letting God be God. And also there's a relief. Now, I mean, there may not be the relief for everybody in quite the same way. I mean, genuinely for me, I made it. I was, I mean, there's a natural progression. You're a deacon and then you're a priest and you're a curate and then eventually you're a vicar. You might be a team vicar and then eventually you're in charge of a parish. And I found being in charge of a parish almost impossible. And I made the discovery that, in fact, I'm a natural-born curate. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm just not somebody who should ever be left in charge of anything. You know, not even a tea party. I, uh, but I'm quite good at sort of gingering things up from the sides and, you know, enthusing and inspiring. But I'm not actually good at remembering who, what, when the committee meeting was or you know, what we were supposed to do. So I'm very fortunate that I've managed to get jobs since then. Once I realised that I should never be in, in a vicar or in charge of anything, I, that was a useful discovery, because it not only delivered me from you know being chair of 16 committees and things, but it also delivered me from ambition. I just simply did. I just thought, actually, I don't want that. I genuinely don't want it. I'm not made for it. But then there was a theological underpinning where I thought, actually, even if I did want that, and even if I was good at it, I would still need to do it in a way in which I understood that I wasn't really doing it that I was doing it with complete lightness of touch, that because Jesus was doing it, I could walk away from it at any moment. What the worst thing would be if I ended up with some sort of corrosive personal need to be in charge of things in order to boost my ego, my shaky ego, and have all these yeses. Now, that would be terrible, and you can see people in power who are like that, naming no names. And, um, uh, you know... How do you not get into that? How do you escape from that? Well, it goes back to that original Our Father, being a child of God. It goes back to receiving, or, you know, that lovely phrase of Paul's, uh, where he says, in, in Christ Jesus, all God's promises find their yes. Yeah? There's a line of the normally bleak poet Philip Larkin. Larkin only really gets happy when he thinks about jazz. And there's a great... There's a great uh, poem of his about a jazz player called Sidney Bechet, and he's listening to the note of this coronet. And he says about Bechet, he says, on me your voice falls, as they say love should, like an enormous yes. 
it's classic Larkin, like they say love should. It's not as if I've ever been loved by anybody, you know. But, um, but, never, but nevertheless, he says, I know what it's supposed to be like, and, it's, and, and that's what I hear. What I hear in this clarinet is an enormous yes. Well, if, if a Larkin, bleak Larkin, can hear the echo of the voice of God in the clarinet of Sidney Bechet, we have heard it fully in Christ Jesus. And what he has said to us is an enormous yes. And it's bigger yes than any amount of Facebook likes or positive strokes or votes from the board that we should continue to be chairman for the next year. And all that stuff. If we did any of that stuff in order to get a thumbs up, we are now entirely set free from that. Because we've already just got the biggest thumbs up that we could possibly have. Which be So now, if we want to be the chairman of the board, Let's do it for the sake of the board and the thing the board is serving or just for fun or, you know, because, you know, it entertains us on a Saturday night to sit and do that stuff. But let's not do it because we need to be important. So I finally want to say that thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory is actually an invitation to playtime. It's a holiday. It's, oh, thank God, I finally found somebody to take on this uh, onerous job. Before we return to the sort of review of the whole thing and um, reciting them out, um, uh, let's just, just try and gather our reflections together on, on, on everything. I hope that in some sense you'll also see that there's a sort of movement from heaven to earth and then in a sense bringing earth into heaven again in this poem that starts with the Father in heaven and the hallowing, and then says, thy will be done on earth, and comes down and deals with all the naughty stuff like bread and forgiveness and all that stuff, and then the big issue about agony and pain and death and the time of trial and setting us free from all of that. And then it finally returns to God's glory. But this time it gives us a chance to give God the glory in a way that actually is a gift or a liberation to us. But it brings us back, if you like, we could start to say the prayer again. If we say, thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, we can also say, thou art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. <laughs> Do you see that? Um, so the prayer can work in that sort of dynamic way for us, which is why to go back to the thing about rote and rattling off. Obviously, in one way, I'm saying, do what you've just done today. Take a whole day to reflect on this prayer, petition by petition. You're doing that. That's wonderful. But I'm also saying, maybe this prayer can work like the Jesus prayer. Maybe we could say, Pater Noster, you know, and on our beads, as they did in the Middle Ages. Because that's another way of coming back to it each time. When we come back to saying hallowed, we're really going to know what it is by the time we said the prayer three times round. I, I always feel that when, when it comes to the Jesus prayer, or for that matter, the Lord's prayer, I know sometimes some of my sort of... Um, my, my, my more earnest and muscular brethren sort of lay hold upon me when they discover I do these repeated prayers and they say, oh, the Lord says in the scripture, you must not heap up empty phrases or make vain repetitions. And I always say, well, if I, got, if I had achieved sufficient spiritual status and power and insight to be able to repeat myself uh, to God, I'd be a very happy man. My hope is that by the time I die, I will have finally said this prayer once with complete, with complete attention. I have never in my life said the Lord's Prayer with a complete awareness of what I'm doing on the one hand, and much more importantly, what he is doing in me, utterly and transformatively all the way through. 
But every so often I get the idea, you know, which is obviously a little bit of a glimpse, that's how the poetry came into being. But even that is fragmented. And I think, you know, I, it's, it's hard enough just to say the things that the patriarchs and prophets could say. Like when Samuel, the little boy, says finally to the Lord, here am I, Keneni, in Hebrew. Well, here I am, that's what Mary says to the angel. I can't even say here I am to God without saying, well, I am here in a manner of speaking. So maybe actually saying the Lord's Prayer many times is a way of finally saying it once. So it doesn't worry me about, about, about you know, the vain repetition. Anyway, he gave us this prayer. He obviously intended us to say it more than once, so I, I, I think that's, that, that's fine. So let me just, because I think that is very important, because that is a moment when we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the Son is the Son, by, by, you know, the Spirit is generated between the, between the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, whereby, you know, Jesus is born. So we finally see those three together. And actually, um, the point about the baptism of Jesus is, do we look across the Jordan from the far side and see that happening and say, well, bully for them, that's great. I'm glad you've got such an intimate relationship with God, but what about me? Or do we say... Jesus actually is with us all, standing in the crowd. There's a great crowd of people coming to John. Jesus is right in the midst of humanity. And John goes like, whoa, what are you doing here? Shouldn't you be baptizing me? Surely some mistake. And, you know, Jesus says, no, no, no. Let the heavens open. And although we see the heavens open and the Father speaking in uh, delight with him, we are called into that river to stand in Jesus, with Jesus, hearing our Father speak to us. That's what, so that's what I say in this. This is my poem on the baptism of Christ. Beginning here, we glimpse the three in one. The river runs. The clouds are torn apart. The Father speaks. The Spirit and the Son reveal to us the single loving heart that beats behind the being of all things and calls and keeps and kindles us to light. The dove descends. The spirit soars and sings, You are beloved. You are my delight. In that swift light and life, as water spills and streams around the man like quickening rain, the voice that made the universe reveals the God in man who makes it new again. He calls us, too, to step into that river, to die and rise and live and love forever. So you're absolutely right. That is where it starts. But we're there. That's the point. It's not, you know... I mean, I love it sometimes, people, when you're doing a baptism and somebody's been on pilgrimage, and they come, come and um, bring you a little thing and say, we got this water from the River Jordan. And I really understand that's beautiful. But I also want to say, of every font, all this water is from the River Jordan. <laughs> this is the river that Jesus is standing in. And this little bit of roof above our church is where the heavens will open and where the voice of the Father will say of your child, this is my beloved in whom I delight. That's why Lars Andrews so beautifully said, the font is the womb of the church. You know. <laughs> So, um, yeah. Um, anybody else want to just throw in something before we, we go, as it were, and utter the, the prayer and the poems again? Just anything, you know, out of the whole experience or out of your reflections on the day or just anything summarising or, or, or drawing these things together that you think might be good to share?
I think the place where that address, that corporate sin, that sense of you know institutional, is addressed in scripture particularly, is that bit um, where is it in Philippians where Paul says, "But we have not come to fight flesh and blood, but spiritual wickedness in high places." I think that's quite literally spiritual wickedness in high places. But I think the point about that is that when you are dealing with racism, fight racism. But one of the ways in which you fight racism, or you fight, you fight you know, um, any forms of these, these, these in, endemic evils, is you actually have to find a way of loving the racist out of his racism. You actually have to find that person, that person's weaknesses and fears and begin, do you know what I mean? You must be absolutely clear that you are resisting the racism or that you're resisting, you know, um, I mean, for that matter, you know, the corporate greed or the, the rapacity of the joint stock company. And, you know, you've got to go, no, this is ick wicked, it is evil, it's got to stop and, and it diminishes everybody, it diminishes all of us. But when you're saying to the person who's perpetrating it, it diminishes you, you have to do so from the perspective that there is a potential person in there set free, liberated, undiminished, ready to do something different. And Jesus, you see Jesus doing that radically all the time. Talk about, you know, endemic or corporate um, systematized corporate sin. If there was ever an example of that, it was the, the oppressive taxation system in, um, in the Holy Land, whereby basically there's an occupying Roman force trying to exact stuff out of the people. And they manage to get a sufficient number of collaborators and quislings, and they assess an area for how much it's worth that they need. And they say, you give us that, and then you, with our authority, you can charge double that to your neighbors and keep the difference. That's what the tax collectors were actually doing with an occupying force, right? Matthew was one of them. Zacchaeus was one of them. The reason why Zacchaeus is up the sycamore tree and can't turn all to see Jesus is nobody's going to let that little quizzling near the front of the crowd, are they? So when Jesus says, come down out of your tree, you know, he might have thought, this because so I can take you up to the top of the hill and that you can get the lynching you deserve. No, he says, come down out of your tree because you're having dinner with me. And in a very act of seeing him as a person you would share table fellowship with, he's completely changed and he gives it back. So that's Jesus absolutely resisting the, system, the evil in the system, but absolutely loving the person who is them, the perpetrator and yet also caught up in it and a victim of it. When, when are the Church of England going to allow us to have contemplative prayer? Well, I, I don't think they've actually forbidden it in the sense that you know, there's not going to be a sudden knock on the door downstairs and it's three archdeacons with a heavy squad saying, we hear you've been engaging in Christian meditation. This will have to be put a stop to. But no, I, I know what you mean. No, obviously, so it's not unallowed in that sense. But I agree with you. Where is the space in liturgy for it? Where is the natural encouragement in the liturgy of the churches for that? Well, the answer is, you know, we had it forbidden St. Edwards, didn't we? And we, there is the opportunity, there's much more freedom, I think, than we realise, to create the space in liturgy for these things to happen. And certainly to encourage the groups for these things to happen. But I, uh, it's a double-edged thing, right? I'd be quite keen for the, there to be a more official liturgical awareness of the kind of things, you know, that, that, that one might want to have find in contemplative or in other <coughs> forms of spirituality. To be honest, though, I'd be quite wary of it being an, a yet another official church project and five-year plan. If you really want to spoil something and take the edge off it, you know, get the hierarchy to tell you to do it. <laughs> 
to be honest, it quite works. It almost works better as a fringy subversive thing than it would if it was on the official menu. I'll tell you what I, what I think is a picture of, of the, the, this relationship between that inner heart of prayer and the stuff. I think you can see it in, the, in John's account, sorry, of the last night with Jesus of Maundy Thursday. Um, you've got, assuming that the beloved disciple, let's just assume for now that the beloved disciple is John. I mean, I think it probably is, but anyway. You've got all this account of the official stuff going on and the big sacraments and everything like that happening and Peter saying, yes, no, do, don't, you know, and running about the place, you know, being Peter. Uh, and everybody's got a role, you know, there's a Peter and there's a Judas. Meantime, throughout all of that upfront organizational stuff, where is the beloved disciple? Where is John? He is lying with Jesus. He has his head on Jesus' breast, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, what can he hear? Is he avidly following the latest twists and turns about who's in charge and who's going to have the throne on the right and the throne on the left and all that stuff going on between Peter, James, and John? He's not even listening to that. What can he hear with his head on the breast of Jesus? He can hear Jesus' heartbeat. That's what the church of John is. John, the beloved disciple, whatever else is going on, is just coming as close to Jesus as possible and listening to his heartbeat. And my thing in the church is, however much Peter, James, and John are running around making fools of themselves, but also doing the necessary stuff and organizing it, somewhere in the churches, there's always John. There's always John just with his head on the breast of Jesus. And you need, whenever you go, move to, you find John. Find the bit of the church. Find the church of John hidden somewhere in the church of Peter and James. You know? Yeah, but so, so what I'm saying is you can do that, and that's what WCCM is, that's what contemplative prayer groups are, that's what, you know, Julian spirituality is. It's, it's just trying to put your head on the breast of Jesus, and in the midst of all the rather, listen to the heartbeat of Jesus. And I'm saying nobody's going to stop you from doing that. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen.